everyone, welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 423. I'm your host, Chris Elner, joined as always by my host, Devin Bixenspan. And Bix, we got an 80s show this week, and uh, some interesting stuff to talk about. Yes, we do. Yeah, and um, this has been the first of uh, a couple of smaller paid shows this week, uh, and next week, as uh, we have a Patreon request for next week. We'll talk about that towards the end of the show. But, um, so yeah, so we're looking at uh, getting a mailbag show done for the Patreon. For the first time in a while. Since we'll have a a little bit of free time, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, so if you want to get something in, then uh, put that in as you listen to this show. Yeah, I'll I'll have a post up on the Patreon by the time this goes up. Yeah, so patreon.com slash 20 sheets and get your question in there and we will answer your question to the best of our abilities. So, uh, yeah, trying to do a little extra since we got a little time. But on that note, let's go back to 1987, September 13th through the 18th. So not quite a full week, but six days. And uh, we're going to start with the World Wrestling Federation. With the NWA UWF closing down much of this week because of their team party in St. St. Martin. Oh, no wonder called, it's a shorter show. <laughs> San Martin. Uh, most of the major news in the past week comes from their Titan TV tapings and a few personnel changes, some which we've touched upon last week. Yes, there is no uh, San Martin. <laughs> it's St. Martin. Um, Isn't it, wait, is San Martin the name? San there? Martin. It's the name of a brand of a toilet. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to remember if there's anything I'm maybe, missing. Maybe, maybe, maybe Dave was looking at some type of joke there. But, uh, but no, it was uh, St. Martin. We'll have more about that when we get to the uh, small Crockett section. But uh, yeah, so they were on their team vacation slash NWA convention. All right, Titus brought back Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who debuted on September 13th, re-debuted, basically, on September 13th at Nassau Coliseum, and printed TV tapings during the week on the 15th and the 16th in Peoria and Rockford, Illinois. Duggan will play the same exact character he played for suspension. After being pulled over by the Jersey police a few months back for allegedly drinking while driving, and other things. Dave sold WF announces in publicity folks are Pretend Duggan was never gone, so his match is hitting on the tube. They won't be welcoming him back, him back or even alluding to an explanation as to why fans haven't seen him on the tube since May. Dave knows there were a lot of folks worried about the crowd reaction to Duggan upon his return, but Dave guessed a thundering positive response to Duggan's return in Houston last month alleviated most of the doubt as the fans simply forgot, or at least pretended to forget, or didn't care about their past allegations have been made against Duggan. Also returning is Ivan Putsky, who's going to work part-time, maybe 10 dates a month, and the Peoria tape and tagged up with the junk food dog. All right, let's talk about Duggan. Yes, which, by the way, so, you know, the story, as we've always heard it, is that, you know, Vince let Paul Bosch bring in basically whoever. It's basically anyone that wasn't working for Crockett, or I guess AWA, uh, for his retirement show in, what was it, end of August? Yes, August the 28th. Okay. And one of the matches he wanted to do, of course, was Duggan versus DiBiase. Duggan, what was the injury torn? What did he tear? 
He tore a muscle, is the point. He tore a significant muscle somewhere in his abdomen or upper legs and gutted his way through the match. And Vince was so impressed that he was like, okay, you're back. The thing I had not taken into account previously, though, is that he's back two weeks later after that, despite this significant injury. And that's part of it. There was also the locker room thing. Let's see how they would... How the, the that Vince took it to the locker room to see how they would react or something like that, mm. you know. And I mean, they did they, they did exactly what Dave said they were going to do. He comes back. It's like he was never gone. Fans were, you know, like whatever. Hey, Duggan's back. You know, I mean, there's nothing. They didn't turn on him at all. Basically. Yeah. Um, I think that was the right move to just act as if he had never left. Yeah. I mean, basically. I mean, it's 1987. Yes, exactly. And Now, uh, if, if this would have... Now, here's the, here's the thing. If this would have happened in 2023, we have a different story. Because the news... I mean, even though the Duggan thing was all over the newspapers... Again, that's newspapers... Nowadays, you got tabloid television, you got the internet, you got all this other stuff. So, it would have been a much bigger story now than it was then. And even then, it was still a fairly big story. And the Duggan character being this pro, you know, this big time patriotic character would have also had another element now that it didn't have then. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, like, I mean, you can't make direct comparisons, though, because, you know, his, his drug charge was just pot. So he, uh, like today, the big deal with him would be the open container more than anything well, else was all, of alcohol. Yeah, but there was also the cocaine. But that was all on cheek. Duggan was not yeah, charged well, with anything I'll, having to do with cocaine. But. Well, I know, I know what you're saying, but. I mean, I've, I've never had any reason to doubt. I mean, Duggan's pretty honest. I, I've never had any reason to doubt that. He wasn't doing coke in the car. He didn't have any on him. I mean, and she had a large quantity on him for an individual. So, I mean. That's but, what I'm, for more, for just one person, yeah. Yes, he had, what was I it? Mean, like there, he there, had, I think he had three grams, which was considered a felony amount. There, there, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. You know, I mean, he's killed by association and a lot of that. Well, too. I was about to say that though. Like, the problem is that the way the general public has interpreted the story was basically these two guys who were enemies on TV were driving to the show and doing drugs together in the car. That's what the story kind of played as to the general public, even if that's not exactly how it went um but it but it didn't it didn't really affect it didn't affect them you know i mean also it the just, only it, reason that it became a big story and got them in trouble was the cafe break if they had individually been arrested on those drug charges or even if they were two baby faces and two heels it would not they would not have gotten fired yeah, that the, the bigger problem was they were together. That's why he got. I think that's why they got fired. You know, and yeah, oh that yeah. was that was a bigger crime than the drugs. Now it did lead to the cocaine testing and uh, what was that? Was the Vince speech? Uh, the days of a six pack and a blowjob are over. Yeah, 
But, uh, oh, so I look, it was a torn hamstring. He was supposed to ca- <laughs> catch a DiBiase kick, and he just took a bad step and tore his hamstring. Um, so that I mean, that's a pretty big injury to come back from in two weeks. Yeah, I'd say it is. Uh, wrestling. It makes you wonder what he was on to, to help help with the pain. And but, things but, but of that speaking, nature. Yeah. Must be in 2023. Um, I saw Jim Duggan had a, a bad health scare over this past weekend to record this. And just as we were discussing him, he tweeted out a picture of him at a Five Guys uh, restaurant. Talking about it was finally good to get, get some non-hospital food. So and he's got a big smile on his face, posing with employees. So that's awesome that yeah. Duggan's out in the hospital and uh, on the road to recovery. Yes. All right. In addition, there are three names you won't be seeing around Titan in the foreseeable future: Corporal Kirshner, Kamala, and Jake the Snake Roberts. Kirshner was fired once again, and we'll have news on uh, his next status, next uh, port of call later on. While Jake's on a twelve-week suspension for drugs. Well, it doesn't say for drugs, which keep going for a second because I have something I want to say about that. And uh, Dave's heard different reports on Kamala, but he has been pulled from all of his scheduled bookings. Arisa Kamala was the headline of the first Sunday's main event of the fall season, which will be taken on September 23rd in Hershey against Hulk Hogan. The new lineup, will, which is set for October 3rd air date, will feature uh, Hogan defending against the worthy challenge of Sika and replacing his tab partner Kamala. Honky Tonk Man against Randy Satcher IC title, which Dave expects something big to happen here, and it did. The Hart Foundation defended the tag titles against the Young Stallions, Ted DiBiase against Kimberly Jim, Paul Underwood against King Kong Bundy, and Don Morocco against Bob Orton Jr. Okay. Um, is... This is not the suspension for Jake where Dave does the favor for whoever at Titan by not outright putting it in the Observer that it was for drugs that he regrets later that he talks about in 91, right? Because I think that was multiple people being suspended, wasn't it? I think this is the, I think this is the one. What Patreon show was that? What number? Because he, um, which Jake's, I mean, Jake's, when he comes back, he's not gone until he has his issues in 89. No, I remember it was in 87, but wasn't he suspended earlier in 87, too? Or is this his only gap in 87? Uh, if he is, where is this? I mean, what what time period is he not there? You know? That's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm pulling up wrestling data real quick. That's the thing. You know, he's around a lot. Is there something else about drug suspensions elsewhere in the event? I mean, JYD, JYD's out for, uh, for a time in you know, 87. Okay, Jake was out. Okay, so April, it's hard to tell because you have wrestled the post-wrestling break in there, but he doesn't wrestle at all. And so he has eight matches in April, but zero in May, and then only 12 in June. So, okay. Well, here's and the thing. Three if Jake, in July. If Jake, here's the thing. If Jake was suspended for 12 weeks, he's wrestling in September and October. But and, only four and, matches each listed in that. But, full, but back to a full load, full load in November, December, and onward. Maybe he did so, get suspended twice. Then. But if he's suspended, he's working. He's not I missing time. He, no, but it was... But no, he's... Actually, wait, let's look at these actual things suspended? to see if they're results or not, though. How's he suspended if he's missing time? What do you mean? I mean, how's he suspended if he's not missing time? 
Okay, yeah, there are actual results on these for September, at least. Hmm. Okay, there's... He, do, he doesn't he doesn't work from October September 4th through October the 27th. Okay. All right, so that is 26 that's 52 days basically. 6 so, times 7 is 48 so just over 6 weeks. Yeah. 7 weeks. No, oh, 7 weeks, you're right. Yeah. So I, mean, I guess he was suspended for 7 weeks, not 12. I guess he got off on good behavior. I don't know. Um, maybe it wasn't really twelve weeks, or maybe, maybe he thought, maybe Dave thought it would be twelve weeks as a second strike or something like that. Possible, because let me see, let me see when his gap starts. Because wait, well, well, wait a second. WrestleMania was it was March twenty ninth, right? And the gap yes. after Mania is usually two, three weeks. Okay, yeah, he has nothing in April until April twenty third. He works through the twenty ninth. Then okay, so. Last match is made is April 29th. He comes back on June June 21st. 21st. June 21st. Oh wait. Uh June Two 19th months. actually. Okay. But so that's the first one there's a result for. Yeah, so Two okay. months. Okay, yeah, so he was suspended twice then. Clear. This suspended twice. There you go. Now which one is the one where uh JYD's out in that same time period too and that uh that first one? Now, when is the Iron Sheik, uh... Sheik and Duggins? No, 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 I was gonna say Sheik and Brian Blair. Where, is it, or is it Jake? Who's the one that Sheik was like, oh, why wasn't X suspended because he was doing cocaine with me? I don't remember. But anyway, yeah, okay, so he's been suspended twice. So I think the other one is the one, uh... The, the spring one is the one I was thinking of. So, okay, so Kirshner, what was... So he was fired twice? <laughs> That's fire once. <laughs> it said fired once again. Oh, I don't know. I guess he was and brought back. I mean, there's a spell where he's not around, so... Yeah, I'm checking to see exactly when that is. Let's see. Okay, so he... Wait, I'm looking at the wrong part of the calendar. Okay, so, I mean, he has matches in every month in 86. Hicks, although he slows down in December, I mean he doesn't have any full month gaps. Just looking at the ca- at the wrestling data calendar, so to speak, until August of eighty seven, which is when he basically, I guess, he was getting fired. So yeah. So when would the previous? I mean, I guess would it be? But again, Vince would fire people and bring them back up like immediately. So yeah. So, like, when I'm looking at the late 86 thing to get the specifics. So, yeah, okay. So, he was gone for three weeks in November 86. No results. And then he's back on a full schedule. So, maybe something happened then. No. And do we have any, do we know what happened with any of these? I'm trying to remember, did he ever do a shoot interview or anything? Uh, I haven't seen one, but we'll have an update on where he goes later. Yeah. Uh, Kamala, I mean, Kamala, this is Kamala, basically the end of Kamala as a guy in a, with a regular spot. He pretty much works wherever, you know, he doesn't have a home. I mean, the closest career. thing he ends up having to home for a little while is all Japan. And that's not, you know, that's not regular. No, he's he not there so, every tour or anything. 
Yeah, just this is him. The end of him being a full time guy, basically. I mean, he's wrestling full time though. He's just not. No. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not wrestling full time anywhere. I mean, he's so what he is pops he doing? I guess he's driving trucks. Did he go back to truck driving at some point? Yes. Okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, was he making decent money at that, and that was that part of the reason why he would kind of come and go places, or has, has something to fall back on? Okay, so okay, I did not realize that. So at least going by wrestling data, there are no results for him until June. Yeah, he just. Okay, yeah, I totally forgot. Okay, I totally forgot. Now that I see this, yeah, he. Aside from like the little guest appearances. And world class and stuff, yeah, and then I guess nothing really until the All Japan tours in like ninety one. Yeah, he's not really doing anything. Yeah. So is what? Right. Wait, 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 wait. When when does Ben Peacock start wrestling as Botswana Beast? Eighty eight. Eighty seven. Eighty seven for um for Jody Jody Hamilton. But when eighty seven? Uh. Summer, maybe spring, summer, because he's feuding Ranger Ross for the Deep South title in '87. I know that. Remember that? Okay, because I'm wondering, because you know they end up teaming, and there's the whole Kamala Tooth thing. I wonder if he got the blessing or something from, uh, Kamala, you know, original Kamala to do that because, like. I mean, he just oh, oh, that's right. And he's New Guinea man eater in Continental fur as well. Before, he yeah, was, yeah. That's one a beast outside of uh, outside of Deep South, I guess. But yeah, I always yeah. found it interesting that like he, for this guy who really could have changed his look up more to be less of a Kamala ripoff, he didn't have to do it the way he did. Seems to have always been on perfectly good terms with Kamala. So I wonder if he got his blessing or something. I teamed that women world class. So now the New Guinea man eater who was in southeastern '84 is not him, though, right? No, no, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, because I mean, he was a he was a was he a Jody student or was he a Bill Dundee student? He's got to start with uh, with Jody, so I would guess it's Jody. Okay. I oh, know, so I, I, I know it's so shocking, by the way, that Jody Hamilton would give a. Uh, a black man, a gimmick like that, right? <laughs> Patreon.com yeah. between the sheets. But, but I mean, one thing you say about Jody Hamilton, he, he he did have you know some quite a few black trainees and wrestlers that came out of his school and pushed so. black baby faces. I mean, yeah, it's well, like we said over and over on those Patreon shows, business. Bigotry, well, and bigotry is not logical; it's not bound it's by business. logic or reason. Right? It's business. Green, green is the ultimate color to, to a lot of those guys. Right. You can still be a, you can be a racist and still recognize that pushing black wrestlers is going to be good for your bottom line. Yeah. I know some TV tapes this past week. Got superstars taping in Peoria. The highlight of the first hour's credit: George interview with Honky Tonk Man, who's given ten reasons why he was the greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time. Randy Savage interrupted him during the second hour. There was a debate between Elizabeth and Jimmy Hart. With Elizabeth getting most of the good zinging shots. They must have rehearsed that one a dozen times to get it right. I have no recollection of ever seeing this. Also during that hour, during the Paul Ondor squash, Rick Rue was in the back still in the spotlight from him by posing. 
between hours, sold the Rougeaus with the Heart Foundation by Count on a Dark match. Then came a Morocco Orton match, which must have been taped because the finish was screwed up. Uh, the ref was supposed to wasn't supposed to count the three, or Orton forgot to kick out. And then they go out and do the match all over again, this time Morocco pinning him again, just in a different way. Have you ever seen a Dave Meltzer sentence that was more him-like, just his thoughts getting scattered and then realizing he couldn't <laughs> redo it on the typewriter? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, because, like, you can tell what he's trying to say there, but that parenthetical should not be there until later. Yeah. Also, in the third hour, they announced we've heated at Audre, the Thanksgiving main event. The next match saw Honky beat Savage by DQ in a good match with lots of Jimmy Hart chasing Elizabeth and Randy going crazy and hitting Jimmy and the ref. They believe this was was taped and will air on October 10th, which means our after Saturday main event, which are fully established, Randy as the babyface. The final dark match saw Hogan pin one man gang. Crowd was around 9,000, but Dave was told the pay was in the 7,000 range, which is disappointing considering all the talent they had on the card. Rockford the next night didn't sell out, but came very close to doing so. Card opened with Dingo Warrior winning a dark match. Ted DiBiase pinned Jacques Rougeau using the trunks in a dark match when Jacques was distracted by Virgil. They then ran a skit where DiBiase called a kid into the ring, promising $300 he can do 30 push-ups. As the kid tried to do them, Duggan came out, and the two exchanged words wound up with Duggan slugging DiBiase, taking the money and giving it to the kid. At least Duggan versus DiBiase has a lot more promise to it than DiBiase with an awful lot of guys with Titan right now. But you know what? They never do a, fe- they never do a DiBiase-Duggan feud. Which is interesting. Yeah, and... You would think that'd be a feud that you know could work because it's DBIC and Duggan. They have the long history, which, of course, they wouldn't acknowledge, but still, they had the history against each other. So you would think that would, would go, but no. Never did it. Yeah, and also, you can see Dave being bullish on it because Duggan just come back. He didn't look that bad. You he know, was he Duggan. Didn't... That's what he was still the old Duggan when he came, when he was during the first run. You know, we've talked yeah. about that before. He's still Mid South Duggan for the most part during his first WWF run. Yeah. It's after he comes back from being fired and the injury where he starts to morph into. Uh, I think it, I think that extends to the race feud, and after the race feud, that's when it, I think when they start when they give him the the blue boots. That's the when blue it changes. Gear. Yeah, that's when it changes. Yes, I think that's fair. Sam Houston beat Terry Gibbs. Not sure if this was a TV opener, but Dave assumed it was, which would mark Sam's Titan TV debut. Dave believed he was on one tape when he first arrived. He has never aired since. This go around, the demolition beat Outhouse Jack and S.D. Jones. One-man gang switch when it moves to the splash off the ropes with Kamala gone. They're free to get that move to another fat man and stretch it out. Van Van Horn of the Beach Boys. Yes, Johnny with- Yes, the illustrious Johnny Stewart. And then another dream team of Ivan Pusky and superstar Billy Graham won a squash what? match. Oh, yeah, I've seen that match. Uh, a few bouts were taken for primetime. So I and Sherry Martell and Velvet McIntyre using the tights. Morocco went to a WQ of Ron Bass in a good match, although fought in slow motion. And Hawkey over Savage by DQ. Second hour included Doug and the Rougeaus beating uh, Danny Davis and our foundation by DQ, and Davis used the megaphone. Also, George Amistad and Holy Race had a match, which saw Hercules do a run-in. Then Young Stallions made the save. Then Bundy came in. And finally, Bigelow chased everybody away. Not much happened in the third hour when the show finished with Hogan pinning Killer Khan after blocking the mist, rubbing it in Khan's face, then disposing of him in the leg drop. 
This is why they've been ending all of their matches lately. It's a TV taping. I mean, there's some eventful stuff, but not a ton. I know it's not airing in our week, but since it's short, I'm kind of curious to see that Liz segment. Given Dave's skepticism and everything. It's only two minutes. Alright. Um, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't, do you remember seeing this ever? I've seen it. Okay. It's, it's not normally how they present Liz, and I get where Dave's coming from on that to a point, so I'm curious. Well, they start learning her talk more. One of the most eagerly yeah. anticipated matches will be occurring this weekend when the Honky Tonk Man defends his title against the former champ Randy Macho Man Savage. To discuss this great matchup. There's the whole thing of where they wouldn't directly plug Saturday night's main event. Never they did do that in this in the NBC era. They did it more they they, they did it on the Fox era. They would say it's a Saturday night on the Fox network. They, or at they, least they, they would they, say check your local listings. Okay, they did okay, that, that that's what they did, actually. But yeah, that's how they did it. They would say Saturday night's main event this weekend, check your local listings. They would say it's Saturday night's main event. They would just say it's like Saturday night or something like that. I mean, there was they were they were slick. I mean, in the, in the Fox promote. era, not here. Yeah, they were way they were slick in their ways of trying to promote this show. And that was just I feel because we talked about it, I don't remember if Dave mentioned that was just to not piss off affiliates that were in NBC yes. stations. Yes, yes, and they were on a lot and on NBC stations. So yes, a lot of Fox affiliates. Now, the managers. First of all, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Three in the comp well four. <laughs> Actually, wait, it's five. Wait a second, he has three champions because he has the Glamour Girls. He's got the Heart Foundation and the hon- and Honky and Glamour Girls. Yeah, so he yeah. actually got three champions. I guess they haven't decided yet that they're about to exist full time again. <laughs> All right, Jimmy Hart says he's not too concerned. Elizabeth, are you concerned about the matchup? Well, of course I'm concerned. I want him to win, but most of all, I'm worried about his safety. (laughs) Well, let me tell you something, baby. You better be concerned over him because I promise you this. We're going to humiliate the Macho Man. And before it's all over, we might play a little tune on him. You know what I mean, man? I'll tell you something, Mouth of the South. You've had a lot to say on this subject. Well, yes, Jimmy Hart has had a lot to say. And yes, the Honky Tonk Man has had a lot to say. But after this match is over, they both would be eating their words. <laughs> all right, we will wait this weekend one of the most eagerly anticipated matches of all time. The title on the line when Jimmy Hart's Honky Tonk Man beats Elizabeth's Randy Macho Man Savage. Elizabeth says Randy Macho Man. I mean, there were no real zingers there. No. Where did Dave get that from? He said there were zingers. There are no zingers there. 
No. I guess it's whoever Dave got the report from. Where was this taping? Peoria. Okay. But, um, yeah, so like you said earlier, standard WF But, I mean, Savage now going babyface, it was time. You yeah. know, he had, he'd been healed for two years. It's time. It was time. And he, I mean, he was getting babyface reactions for a while. Like, he gets a, especially when you consider the context of the feud, he gets a, like, startlingly big babyface pop coming out at Mania. Yeah. Yeah, it was time. Uh, they appeared at the TV team and they were going to set up a Danny Davis-Jake Roberts feud, but that's now down the tubes. Well, good lucky for Jake, it, was, it ended up being down the tubes. Yeah? That shows you what they thought of Danny Davis at this time, but, uh... And that's Vince's boy, so... Does this turn into the George Steele feud? Uh... I guess because the Sam Houston feuds in 88. So. So, so does this say more about what they think of Davis or what they think about Jake? I would think Davis. I don't know. Do they still consider him kind of hot as a heel? Or? Yeah, he was cooling off by this point because his wrestling wasn't matching his gimmick. I mean, his push. No. Um... They went a long time. They went a long time without having him work a singles match, too. Yeah. So, all right, in addition, Titan announced their main event for their uh, show on November 26th in Richmond, Ohio, which will go on a Nash Preview. The Survivors Series match was basically just a 10 man elimination tag since Hogan, Kim Patera, Superstar Billy Graham, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Orndorff against Andre the Giant Statue, Rick Rude, One Man Gang, Bundy, and Butch Reed. By the way, why does he always spell Rick Rude's name wrong at this point? I guess fair. I don't know. Andre the Giant Statue. (laughs) I wonder if they knew we would have an Andre the Giant Statue uh, later, years (laughs) later. Uh, Since this announcement has been an evening show and be available at 3 million homes, so with a 3% buy rate, let's assume they'll get 150,000 homes to order, which means a $2 million plus gross. It appears to go head to head with Crockett Starcade card at the Pavilion in Chicago, which would be also be available for review. Although Dave's not sure how many cable systems can be cleared for Starcade, since Vince appears to have gotten the jump on him here. For more on Patreon. that, patreon.com slash between the sheets. Slash between the sheets. Yes. Uh, so, this is the one buy rate where both Dave and Paul Kagan Associates have the same number which is a 7% buy rate, which would be 525,000 homes. Yeah. So, this did honestly significantly better than Dave was expecting. Well, it was in more homes than he was expecting, too. I mean, that's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's the Starcade thing or what, that he doesn't seem to think that cable companies are going to want to buy in on this. I mean, that's the implication, right? Seems that way. You know, because WrestleMania was in... What was it? I mean, at the like, I think a little over six million overall, and it was four and a half to five. I think of other that weren't the viewers' choice systems. So yeah, so this would like he's thinking it's like two, depending on what number he's working with, like half to two thirds of the Mania universe. So maybe he's thinking there's going to be a greater split with Starcade. Maybe that there's going to be a lot more Starcade com- cable companies than end up being. I guess. Yeah. 
At the Thanksgiving show, Titan is going to do heavy advertising for WrestleMania 4, including taking advanced phone orders for the pay-per-view of the card. Did that happen? I don't remember that happening. It's an interesting idea, but what would be the incentive to to order then? To order four months in advance? I guess to get it done. I don't know. Uh, unless you offer some big discount or something. I, I That's interesting. Or some kind of incentive. Especially you haven't, like, yes, Hogan Andre ends up being the focus to try to draw people in. But you still haven't shot the actual angle yet or anything. So it's like, yes, there's continuity. Yes, there's, like, it ends up being a hook between the two shows. But odd. And maybe that's why they didn't actually end up doing that. Yeah. Ricky Steamboat made one or two appearances next month, something for Jake. Because remember, Steamboat's on his sabbatical here. Yeah. So when did the sabbatical actually start? After he lost the IC title. What was it, right away? So when does he work the house show program with Hockey, though? I mean, he's... He's gone. Let's see. Okay, it looks like July is when the gap start. real big gap starts. He's yeah. not full-time, but he has matches. Yeah. So, and he's not back until October? No, yeah. September. September's when he starts seven for Jay. It looks like he's only working the biggest markets during the sabbatical. Because, like, July is just New York and Los Angeles. Well, he does work MSG in August. That's what I'm saying. August is just MSG. Yeah. And then he comes back and works Toledo on the 19th, seven for Jay. So, hmm. and when was the title switch? June the second. Okay, so it was closer to the sabbatical than I remembered. Yeah, June second in Buffalo. <laughs> How many weeks off did he actually ask for? That Vince freaked out. Uh, a lot. <laughs> now I've, a lot. Uh, I forget. Has has he changed his? tune on how he looks at that post Bonnie or does he still have basically the same outlook on what happened uh I don't know because there are some things post Bonnie where he has a much different view of things that he used to but I mean god I don't want to be against people taking time off especially for a new kid and it's I mean here's the thing it's not like he had just won the title and I mean, he's still working matches with Savage, though, on some house shows. Not all. Do you think it was... Let's let's just say knowing how wrestling is unwise for him to ask for the time off, given his spot relative to the when he won the title. They just gave him the title at WrestleMania 3. I mean... You could see where they'd be pissed off. Yeah. And when was... I totally uh, understand him. When was Ricky Jr. born? <laughs> Richie was born in 87. Uh, He's July born July 7th. 7th. Okay. So that's interesting, because when, when does the Hockey Talk match air? I mean, it must air at least a couple weeks after it was taped, so... It aired June 13th. 
Okay, so they timed out the title change to where it aired closer to where he was actually going to be taking the time off. Huh. And uh, I just, I, maybe he, I'm curious if maybe he saw a window with the Savage program ending that he could take time off. I mean, the other thing is he probably shouldn't have asked for, it. he should be able to, but with how wrestling was at the time and him being, you know, in the business over a decade at that point, he he should have known that it would have not have gone well. Is, I guess, the best way to put it. You know? Like, I could see why maybe with the Savage program ending, he could... He thought he'd be able to do it, but, like, it, I think to ask specifically for the six weeks off or whatever he was saying, as opposed to, could I have reduced dates or whatever, for the next few months, whatever, I feel like sealed his fate, and even though it shouldn't have, I, he should have known better. Yeah. All right, Campatera is scheduled to return to the ring around mid-October. And what great storytelling and booking that whole mess is. <laughs> okay. How do I put this? In terms of, let's say especially this era, this, you know, 80s Hulkamania period. Is there any worst booked storyline than this in terms of just basic storytelling? What's going on with your microphone? <laughs> I had to do something. Okay. But, like, is there anything worse than this and that it should have been more obvious this would not work to bring him back as a babyface? Where, like, the, and the Heenan viewed as Heenan didn't visit him enough in prison for this thing where they don't get into a ton of specifics, but it was big enough news that a lot of fans know what happened. Um, I guess they figured that he was getting out of jail, they needed to have him as a babyface. And the only way they could do it was to do the the angle where Heenan didn't visit him. Maybe the only way they could explain it. I don't know. But you agree really it was a no, terrible no, idea. Well, I mean, I don't think you want to bring him back as a heel. Uh, why, though? Why bring him back at all? Is that what you're trying to say? I mean, honestly, to a point, yes. Because they felt, I guess they felt they had to make good. But why bring him again? Why bring him back as a babyface, or why bring him back as a babyface with this? It's been long enough. Redemption, and I've watched that stuff. He was over. They got that shit over. He was very over when he first came back. But it the fizzles was, with him. He started gaining weight. Well, he got hurt. That's the he got hurt very early, and he gets buried on commentary. Um, and I think it was Vince that says, and this is in 88, early 88 or something, and talks about how, <laughs> Kim Patera sure does get hurt a lot lately. And Jesse says, well, you know, he trains so hard and this, that, and the other that, you know, it's bound to happen. So Vince saying that line, that said definitely something. Hmm. And so he's also just not a good baby face, period. He was fine. He was fine at the beginning, 
but once but but there was no but that was a story he so you had the story the promos well early on yes but so but once you get once you got that story the heinous story then they didn't have anything else for him to work with you know well, that's the thing anyway i mean that's that, that that's the, that's the thing with patera all right, so Boston Garden on September 12th, 14,314. We have Scott Casey and S.D. Jones over the shadows. Only the shadow knows. And a lot of these matches aired on primetime, uh, especially the early ones. Duke of Dorchester beat Doherty, beat Lanny Poffo. The star graduate of the Terry Garman School of Self-Defense, Steve Lavardi over Siva Hoffi. And I'm pretty oh. sure that was that on commentary. Well, it's Gorilla and Alfred along with Pete Doherty. Oh, so, yeah. oh I got to find... I gotta find this, and it's um, I, I I watched it recently, and I was going to upload it, but I completely forgot about it. There was a match on Prime Time from '88, where it's Gorilla and Bobby Heenan on commentary, and and it going, and it's not Steve Lombardi. They go in this full Terry Garvin School self defense thing on Barry Horowitz. I've seen one of those at least. At least. Oh, it's something else. Um, then we had Ted DiBiase over Bruce Beefcake, Hercules over Dave Boy Smith, Heart Foundation over Sika and Mr. Fuji, seven for Kamala. And Heart Foundation are heels here. George Emma Silver King Holly Race. Obviously, something happened here because I, I don't remember what it was because it was on the most embarrassing moments Coliseum video. And uh, Hulk Hogan retained the title of being Killer Khan. Now, DoF ran their last show at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit on September 12th. They're no longer going to run that venue because they signed the deal with JCP to start running shows on September 25th. Oh, nothing's interesting going to happen on that show. DoF will now run shows regularly at the Silver Dome in Pontiac, Michigan. JCP is also securing deals to run shows in Hartford and Providence, which is angering the WWF. And they're running in the uh, Pistons configuration of the Silver Dome, to be clear. Yes. Uh, final car before moving to the Silver Dome drew 3,000 fans. Well, they wore that market out. So, wait, all- wait, so, yes, it had been a strong market for them, but why not, why not just run the Kobo? I don't know, they just ran it to death. Uh, Honky beat Savage by DQ. Orndorff went double count out with Rude. Duggan over Danny Davis. Coco over Ron Bass. Sherry over Velvet McIntyre. Demolition over Powers Payne. Dan Spivey over the Frenchie Martin, Dingo Ware over Terry Gibbs, and Sam Houston over Jose Estrada. No, but think about this for a second. If they're not drawing well, why not just run the smaller building? Or does it have the same ownership as the Joe Louis Arena since they're next? It year? does. Okay. Yes. That's the reason. And <clears throat> Speaking wow. of not drawing well. Though, let's run the Silver Dome. You know, that's where WrestleMania 3 was held. No, but I was going to say that, speaking of not drawing well, though, this Nassau number, I feel like, might even be worse. September 13th at the Coliseum. 3,500 fans at Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale. Cowboy Lang and Pepe Gonzalez teamed up with the Karate Kid to be Killer Cruz, Little Tokyo, and Lord Littlebrook. Siva Afi be Frenchie Martin. Killer Khan over Esty Jones. Demolition over the Young Stallions. George Emma Silver Harley Race by disqualification. Hacksaw Duggan, subbing for Jake, beat Danny Davis. And Randy Savage beat Sika, subbing for Kamala. Not a great lineup even before the subs. Not really, though. You can see why that drew uh, less than a quarter house. 
Yeah. Because now it's also what, like 15,000, 15,5 for something yeah. like that for wrestling. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of Killer Cruz before. Yeah, he was one of the uh, midgets around this group at this time. Uh, I, I'm guessing he, he and Pepe Gonzalez did not work WWF much. Yeah. September 13th, Miami saw Superstar Billy Graham and JYD over One Man Gang and Patrine, Islanders over Strike Force, Morocco over Orton, Bigelow over Bear Horowitz, Bundy over Outhouse Jack, Tiger Lee over Brady Boone, and David Sammartino over Joe Murdo. No attendance listed, but I can only imagine what that was. Uh, so what? What? Uh, our main event is Graham and JYD against Gang and Reed. Gotta be in Miami. Yeah, that's a weird show to run in a market of that size. Well, I mean, we continue with these attendances. New Haven on the 14th or 2800 as Jerry Allen beats George Scolan half star. The six man midget match took place. Killer Connor versus Steve Offie half a star. Superstar Billy Graham retrieved by DQ and Slick interfered one star. Harley Race went to a 20 bed draw, British Beefcake. Star to half. What the fuck? <laughs> Teddy Biasi over JYD and Virgil tripped him up. Two stars. Hard Foundation with WDQ with Demolition and a dud. Nobody worked, which was too bad because it's had potential to be a good match. Okay. So that. I mean, Hard Foundation have been in a drawing position that's what i was saying again. about to say though heel versus heel all these may face tag teams are going heels and heels against each other it's weird all right syracuse 2300 fans on the 17th sam Barry horwitz excellent opener olympia hartower over uh, judy martin olympia i guess it's olympia hartower yes. olympia's divided bill from glow this match was absolutely awful due to olympia uh, Rick Ruder, Rusty Jones, Duggan over Honky by DQ, Honky in with a guitar, Duggan stuff for Jay, which was who was announced to being gone for medical reasons. Well, Outhouse, Outhouse Jack and Lanny Poff over the shadows. Dan Spivey limping badly with a big brace on his right knee, beat Danny Davis by count out in five minutes when Davis did his usual walkout. And finally, I saw Savage playing Hercules. Next show would be a Superstars taping with Heart Strike Force and Hogan Khan as the main events. Spectrum drew 9,000 fans. And real quick, uh, Olympia Hardtower was Corporal Kelly in Glow early on. Okay. Uh, 9,000 at Spectrum, not good. Sky Case of Iron Mike Sharp, French Martin of Rusty Jones, Beer Horse of Lady Poffo, Brutus of Rude by DQ, and Race interfered in the best match on the card. Outhouse over Tiger Chung Lee, Savage over Harley Race, Hogan over Killer Khan, and Heart Foundation over Killer Bees. Well, according to Dave, it's the Killer Z. Yes. Then yeah, we the got killers. Chicago. However you want to put it. Rosemont Horizon, in fact. No attendance listed here either. Oh, that's not good. For September 18th, we got Bob Orton Jr. over Jerry Allen. Hercules over Don Morocco. Coco over Nikolai Volkov. Sherry retained the women's title over Phil McIntyre. Young Stans over Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine. Strike Force over the Islanders. Superstar Billy over Butch Reed. Orndorff over Bundy in the old-fashioned whipping match. Where Bobby Heenan was handcuffed to Kempatera at ringside. And so that's your event. Country whipping match, I guess? Yeah, the old-fashioned whipping, country whipping, yes. That's your main event of the car. So, yeah, this is a draw, I would think. What are they doing? After Mania 3, you know, they're in this malaise for a little bit. Yeah? Hogan doesn't have a program. 
He's working just random people. Savage's babyface turns coming, but they haven't done that well, yet. Well, Hogan doesn't have a national program. The Killer Con thing is kind of a actual feud, but only in the cities where it's happening because they didn't air the angle or anywhere else. Yeah, but he doesn't have he doesn't have a big ang- TV angle. So, I mean, it's just they're in a malaise until they get ready to start building Survivor Series up and then go into the Rumble and the Mania Four. When they start making DiBiase a ser- the serious, you know, deals a heel and bring Andre back. Now, speaking of Million Dollar Man, um, he's on Superstars during our week, doing a deal with a kid involving offering him money to do some push-ups. So let's go to Craig George and the Million Dollar Man and see how this goes for the, this young child. Introducing the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. What a name for a YouTube channel, by the way. I hadn't seen this one before. The Wrestling Memory Grenade? Yeah. Ted, I want to... You've said enough. You've said enough. Well, 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 Virgil. Here we are in the fruit-picking capital of the country. And as you all know, you don't make very much money picking fruit. And it's obvious as I look around this building tonight that we're in the midst of a very poor, poor crowd. And as you all already know, just like you're poor, I am very, very rich. That's right. I am loaded. And you know what that means? I'm rich, you're poor, and that makes me better than each and every one of you. <laughs> and you know something else? It, pause. You, it doesn't. Fre- they're in Fresno. That's where they're at, Fresno, California. Officially known as Fresnick. So there you go. Also. Rednecks. I'm just shocked that the Vince McMahon avatar character just said each and every one of you. <laughs> yes. Well, be that as it may, let's get back to this. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. All you kids out there are just like your parents. You know, father like son, mother like daughter. You've all got a price for the million dollar man too, and I'm going to prove it right here, right now. Because I'm going to give some young person out there the opportunity to make some money from a million dollar man it never goes away but i'm noticing that he makes more of an effort to disguise his drawl as time goes on yeah which i guess technically he's from texas where did he grow up ted debussy yeah Yeah, basically basically that's right i want somebody to do some push-ups now, who wants to do some push-ups for the Million Dollar Man? Uh, let me see the hands of all you kids out there that want to do some push-ups for the Million Dollar Man. Well, look at all those hands, Virgil. No, he actually grew up basically in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, so that was... I was That's where he went to high school. Like... Now, he went to West Texas State on the football scholarship. You know why that... I mean, we all know why that was. No, but, but is yeah, that a... But, I mean, but... 
So actually, wait. How old was he when his when his dad died? Um, he was fifty four. Teddy was born, so he was fifteen. So almost fourteen. So where? No, he was fifteen. So were he was he and his mom just parked in Nebraska while Mike was working? He went. He moved. He moved to Arizona when his mom was going through her issues. Um, but he attended high school in Nebraska. Okay. So, and then went to West Texas State. But Mike DiBiase was not like working in Nebraska territory for 15 years. He was doing the not moving your family to the territory thing, right? Well, Mike DiBiase is from Nebraska. He went to University of Nebraska. That's where he's from. No, but I mean, but he like mainly was working in West Texas and places. Yeah, he was working. They died in Lubbock. Yeah, but he was buried in Arizona. Okay. So yeah, he died in there. I mean, he was he's buried in Arizona. Which, by the way, like that was a thing that. And Mike was his adopted father, which again, that's the thing. But he's the only father Ted ever knew. Yeah. Um. Ted's mom. Ted's mom was a wrestler. Yes. And uh, her his real dad was a singer. I don't think I knew that. I don't think I knew anything about who his biological dad is. Ted Wills. Oh, so we... Or Ted... Ted Willis, whatever it is. Ted Wills, Ted Willis, whatever. Was he born... So, I I guess he was born... Or was she with Mike by the time Ted was born? No, his his real name is Theodore Marvin Willis. I'm sure he changed it, though. But that's his birth name. Yeah. Okay. But not Junior. Different middle name, maybe? I guess. God damn, pal. I mean, that's why it bothers Vince, the junior thing. Because he's not junior. Different middle names. Yeah. Well, and, every, and also that people used to condescendingly call him junior. Yeah. But, Captain Lou Albano. But yeah, just to finish the thought, and then I'll Beanie. play again. Um, I don't know how common it was, but maybe it was for some wrestlers who were more nomadic or whatever. Or who wanted to have even more opportunities to cheat on their wives. There were a lot of wrestlers who would not move their families to a new territory. Well, there's reasons for that. To not disrupt the kids in school and stuff. Yeah, for a number of different reasons. And to have their, and to have their families in other territories. Well, that too. Yes, yeah, some that would just outright have different families. Yes. Um, that was the thing that would happen. Like, when Snooka's out on the road with, you know, Nancy Argentino as his, you know, road girlfriend... His wife and kids were in Charlotte, mm-hmm. even though he was in WWF. He he just never he never moved them up there until uh, at, later in '83, I think. So that was the thing that happened. Okay, right over here, right there. the money from the million dollar man you can do some push-ups for me so if we go by rvd's story these are not plants right as far as i know no i guess because you're mainly going with kids there's and it's all pre-taped it's basically what's the harm in getting a real reaction yes kids Get down and let me see how many push-ups you can do. Four. 
Can you even tell him how many he needed to get to? Eight push-ups. Yeah. Not too bad. Well, he didn't well, actually offer I'm money. tell you what I'm going to do, kids. I'm going to give you one. No, I'm going to two. No, Virgil, I'll tell you what. We're gonna, I'll give you $300, kid. And you look like you could use $300. I bet you and your parents both could use 300 bucks. I'll give you 300 bucks if you can get down there and give me 10 push-ups. Now get down there and give me 10 push-ups. Okay, I'm curious. Do you think that one was a plant? Specifically failing at nine? It's tough to say. Yeah. But it just watching these early DBIC vignettes compared to what he would become later on when he's more the cartoon. I mean, it's he's really better in the, in this in this version of the Mandela Man. Yes, I mean he's already dressed like a cartoon, but he's just more of an outrageous asshole. Yes. Now we all—I mean, everybody loves the the over-the-top laugh and all that stuff, but it, he the gimmick works better in this version of the gimmick. It's a stronger heel character. Yes, and it also feels more like. The previous Ted DiBiase doing, you know, getting into this persona, the previous heel Ted DiBiase, as opposed to what it turns into, which is more of a completely new character. Yeah, this is just over-the-top cartoon, you know. Here it's recognizable as Mid-South Ted DiBiase. In a way, yeah. Not completely, but it's there. Yeah. Which you know, I, I I like the other one too, but I I, I prefer this one better myself. All right, um, next we get some uh, pile driver album love from uh, the executive producer of American Bandstand, and that will lead us into uh, Randy Savage being pissed off at the Honky Tonk Man. 
So let's uh, go to this clip. Wait, Van Sam was still on 87? Oh, God, yes. So Van what Sam year was did it go off the air? 89? Okay, I'm curious before we start playing. <laughs> Wait, why did this go away? Uh, American 87, 87 was the end of it. Now, it was syndicated to 88 with the USA Network in 89. And, um, yeah. Now, it ended on ABC on September the 5th, 87. Now, when you syndicated then, um, which um, went back to its hour length, it was uh, WOR in York. It aired until June 4th, 88. Then they moved to um, USA Network, but Dick Clark wasn't the host. Mm. Dave, Her- Dave Hirsch hosted. Then they shot it outdoors at Universal Studios Hollywood. And that lasted on 26 weeks. Hmm. Okay. And so, wait, and just our week here is what? The 13th through 19th? It's the end. Of, it's the week after Bandstand's over with, basically, yeah. Okay. And then uh, Pile Driver comes out on the 21st, just after our week. Yeah. So you'll get the explanation here uh, from the executive producer about the Pile Driver album and stuff. So let's go to the clip. But not why ABC canceled it. Well, of course not. <laughs> about a year ago, or a little bit over a year ago, I got to hold the first round. Larry Klein. Yep. Producer, American Manson. Wrestler's album. Listened to it, liked what I heard. Because of it, I put Junkyard Dog on the American Bandstand show. Kids liked it. The audience response was terrific. It was over with. A year later, what happens? Here comes the second Wrestler's album. It's better than ever. It's not a. It's been two years. <laughs> Well, JYD was on Bandstand '86, I think. When was that? When in '86? Um, I think maybe earlier in '86. It's possible. I don't know. Uh, do we have a date? If I Google it, uh, no, it was '85. Well, you know, whatever. Semantics. <laughs> Novelty. It's here to stay. Me being the producer of American Bandstand, what else can I say? But I like the beat. I give it an 85. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he said I like the beat. Yeah. At least in like the 50s and 60s, I don't know if later, you know, what does every audience member say when they're asked about about a song on American Bandstand? I like the beat. Yeah. Um, Well, that's what they're dancing to. Of course I like the beat. Well, yeah. Um... I thought it was interesting that they have that line in there, which I'm sure this is being scripted for him to a degree, about it's not a novelty. It's here to stay. Because the big switch between, you know, the wrestling album and Pile Driver, the wrestling album too, it has one or two pieces of Wopcom entrance music on it. But by and large, the wrestling album is designed to be like a novelty album. Yeah, because you got Nikolai Volkov singing Cara Mia. You got uh, Jimmy Hart's song. You got the Albano thing. Roddy Piper's song. It's supposed to be a Dr. Demento-ish novelty record. Plus, it has all the interstitials with the announcers. and Yes. Gene Oakland singing Tutti Frutti. Yes. Yeah. Pile Driver's not that. Pile Driver's entrance music plus the weird Hillbilly Jim uh, ballad. And Vince singing Stand Back. Yes. So, 
It's a serious album, so to speak. But you get what I'm saying? It's interesting that that's in there, because I wonder if Vince or someone felt they needed to get across... Possibly. ...that it's not the same kind of thing that the first one was. Impossible. I have the vinyl here somewhere for that. But anyway. Remember the Macho Man last week, what a tremendous victory he had. Well, we followed the Macho Man all the way back into the dressing room after that match last week. He was looking, apparently, for the Honky Talk Man. Here's what happened. Come on, Jimmy Hurt. Where's the Honky Talk Man? feels about his cousin <laughs> also how about steve gator wolf dancing to honky tonks music which also with this taping he isn't still not he's not using his song from pile driver yet no he's still using his original song which is interesting because you gotta think that album is done by the time this is taped and it's airing oh you know a week and a half before the album drops, why are you not using the new song? I guess it's for that tape and they weren't ready yet. I don't know. I find that doubtful. Well, they didn't use it for a reason there, Bix, so obviously there was something. Yeah, and it is interesting how Savage really doesn't have any actual, like, turn. He just, he's pissed because Honky Tonk Man calls himself the greatest record no champion of all time. Yeah. And it talks about Savage. When when Honky won the title, Savage was the first man there to congratulate him. Yeah. Alright, well we close out with this. Comedian Richard Belzer filed suit this past week against Hulk Hogan for five million in the incident, which took place just for the first WrestleMania on Belzer's cable television show. For those of you who may have missed it, Hogan and Mr. T were on with Belzer during the middle of WrestleMania Height Week in eighty five. Belzer asked Hogan to demonstrate a hold on him. Hulk put Belzer in a front face lot and apparently squeezed so hard that Belzer passed out. And when Hogan let go, Belzer collapsed on the stage floor and suffered a nine-stitch cut on the back of his head. Okay. Um, we've covered... I mean, we covered the end of the lawsuit from, I think, the week it got settled where it was going to go to trial, which... I think that was the show... Where, that was the show that was, like, end of 89, beginning of 90 that Dylan was on, right? 
Long time ago, yes. Yes. Uh, we covered the week of... I don't think we had Mania proper, but we covered the week of basically the bulk of the Mania hype, including this. Um, what was that, about a year or so ago? Last year? <coughs> Recently. Yeah, I think that was last year, last March. Um, and we went very in-depth, you know, looking at the... It was before I had to re-upload and draw more attention to it, but we were watching because we found the full segment which it seems like most people had not seen and it gives a different picture of it. I mean, look, I don't necessarily think Hogan meant to injure him, but the way he conducted himself on the show and, you know, say, tell Mr. T I'm going to make him squeal. And the fact is that he, just, he deliberately put a shoot, you know, basically put like a power guillotine choke on him. Which, and he clearly knows he's putting a legit blood choke on him and not a working front face lock. And he just has him standing there, and then whether it's Belzer passed out quicker than he expected or what, as Belzer's going out, he just lets go and Belzer hits his head on the floor, and that's why he got sued. If Belzer doesn't hit his head, if Hogan just puts him out and, like, puts him in a sleeper, like, and gently sets him down and then wakes him up. I don't think there's a lawsuit or anything, do you? I mean, we talked about this on the previous show. So, yeah. yeah just, it, I'd love to know how much money he ended up getting in that settlement. You know, we know it was enough to buy the estate in France that he named Shea Hogan. But, like, I've wondered, too, like, is there, is it that, Titans thought they were going to lose in front of a jury and were going to lose more money? Or was there stuff they were worried would come out if there was a trial? I, um... Yeah, I fought a $5 million lawsuit in 87 against uh, Hogan and Mr. T. And it didn't end until the end of 89. Yeah. So there you go. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if there's too much more to add, because we've gone in detail on it so much in the past. Um, yeah. But, the, but the, it shows you how long it shows you how long these things can take. Well, they didn't even because sue them for two and a half years. And then it took over two years for the lawsuit to go to court and be done. So, yep. yep. I mean, it's a different type of lawsuit, but I mean, look, look, look at the UFC. And, uh, ugh, I almost had interfaith for some reason. Man, I'm thinking of Belzer's marriage. Um, it almost, it, it's taking like a decade for the real movement in that UFC antitrust lawsuit. It took a, it took a decade for the demolition WWF lawsuit to fully resolve. This stuff can take time sometimes. Yeah. And also, despite all the media coverage previously and that Belzer had made it part of his act and that would come up from time to time, this lawsuit being filed gets almost zero coverage that we can find. There's like yeah. a blurb in the Philadelphia Daily News, and that's about all I can find. Yeah. All right, let's go international now. We'll start in Japan. Land of the Rising Sun and All Japan Pro Wrestling. They ran Tokyo on the 15th. We have Mitsuo Momoda over Yoshinara Gawa. Matoshi Okuma over Masakurisu. Samateranishi and Ruga Egan over Kiyosato and Asao Takagi. 
Joel Deaton went to a double count out with Samson Fuyuki. Rush Kimura and Gross Rumi over Mighty Inoue and Haro Sonoda. Tiger Masamasawa and Takashi Shikawa defeated Dick Slater and Nelson Royal. Masafuchi beat Toshikawada. Yoshiaki Yatsu and Shinichi Nakano over Nick Botwinkle and Gene Legan. Yeah, that's a team. Jumbo Sharuda and Great Kabuki over Tenukurichiro and Shirahara. And then our main event, Stan Hansen over Hiroshi Wajima. Now, Austin Ina was slated to be on this show, but the day earlier, he suffered some sort of a legit injury and missed the final days of the tour. So even when he's there, he finds a way to know, sure. <laughs> well, he gets hurt, I'm yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, um, what an interesting group of uh, foreign talent on this tour. We got Idol, and you got uh, Deaton, Slater, Nelson Royal, Botwinkle in his final tour, final matches, Gene Legan. <laughs> so is the – what venue is this in Tokyo? Um, I think this will be Tokyo City Gym. And then TV taping? Yes. So this, I'm guessing, is the Fuchi Kawada Jr. title match? Uh, it doesn't say so, but isn't there one that's on TV around this time? Well, the junior titles defended a lot in this era. Um, it's one of those times where it's doing that. All right, so let me see. Uh, yes, yes, uh, that was a junior title match, and the handsome Watchman match was for the PWF heavyweight title. Okay, it's been a long time it, since I've watched it, but I remember really aired on the... uh, September twenty sixth. Okay. I remember really liking the Fuji Kawada match. Oh, yeah, really good. Yeah. It's also just weird, like, even though I knew by then, like, the first time I saw it, it was still so weird to see, like, high spot Kawada, especially outside of a tag team context. And Fuyuki has just turned to, he's just joined Revolution. Yeah. So there's that as well. So, yeah. Is this when he's still kind of, like, I don't know if I would say jacked, but not. Yes, he was. He was. He was doing the the, the full Samson for Yuki loincloth era yes. here. Yes. So yeah, he. I mean, he wasn't jacked per se, but he was slim and in shape. Yes, and even in like in Footloose, he's not in bad shape, but he's not the shape he's in as loincloth no. Samson. No, no. But anyway, so yes, if. Oh, September 26, 87 aired the main matches from this TV, so there's that. If you want to go check that out. New Japan, they had a TV tape in Sakamahara on September 13th, where we have uh, Tetsuo Shigoto over Tetsuo Nakano, Osama Matsuda, the future Samurai, over Shigeo Miyato, Black Cat over Don Arakawa by disqualification. Then we have Kazuya Yamazaki, Keiichi Yamada, and Nobika Takada over Hiroseno, Kensuke Sasaki, and Norio Naga. Kuna Kobayashi over Black Tiger, Owen Hart over George Takano, Keiji Mino and Seisakuchi over Kendo Nagasaki and Amano Seki Ueda by disqualification, Masaido and Super Strong Machine over Scott Hall and the Cuban Assassin, and this is Dave Sierra, Tetsumi Fujinami over Dick Murdoch by disqualification, and Akira Maeda and Riki Choshu went to a double count out with Antonio Noki and Yoshiaki Fujiwara. Okay. Should I reserve my comments until we get through the Osaka results? Yeah, because we're in the new now feud here because uh, Maya and Choshu teaming up. All right, Osaka. Osaka Professional Gym before sale, 6880 for about $260,000 gate. Had a 10-man elimination bout. We saw Dick Murdoch, Yoshiki Fujiwara, Seisa Gucci, Masaido, and Antonio Noki. Defeated Nobuka Takada, Super Straw Machine, Akira Maeda, Riki Choshu, Tetsumi Fujinami. 
match went 26-08, and with Fujinami along with Saito and Inoki, Fujinami Juice was beaten brutally by Saito before finally being pinned. Then afterwards, Saito and Inoki got into it to set up their October 4th Jungle Island death match. Joshua and Murdoch were both counted out within one minute, so Dave was soon announced for TV purposes so they could show the match from the second minute with no problem. <laughs> After that, Fujinami pinned Sanguchi, and Fujiwara made machine submit to the armbar. Maeda with Fujiwara, Saito and Maeda. With the prison lock, notice Maeda's being moved down a notch, Dave said. Saito then pinned Takata, leaving Fujinami along with Inoki and Saito. Also on this show, we had Kunokobayashi keeping their junior title. Giant WGB pinning Owen Hart with the Fisherman Suplex. Other results, Kensuke Sasaki and Osama Suda went to a draw on the opener. Don Arakawa Black Cat. Brian Adams over Kenichi Oya, the future Scott's Oya. Keiji Yamana, Sunji Kazugi over Hirosaito and Norianaga. Scott Hall over Tetsu Shigoto. Kazuyamazaki and Osama Kido over Kenagasaki and Namaseki Ueda. Dick Murdoch and Cuban Assassin over George Kano and Kijimuto. Kobayashi over Owen and then the famous elimination match. Yes. And of course, this was uh, a TV taping as well. Um, that elimination match, very, very famous. Yes. Great match. And. The reason that Choshu cannot appear on TV is that he's still exclusive to Nippon TV through November, I think. The, and that's on September 25th, New Japan TV. The elimination match and the uh, Kobayashi Owen Junior Tana match, where the matches air. Um. So, it, did the wrestlers have separate contracts with the networks, or at least some of them? That he's legally able to jump, but not be on TV? <sighs> New Japan's wrestlers sign with TVSI. Dur- you know, I mean, only? Or do they also sign with New Japan? That's what I'm getting at. It was basically one and the same. Now, what about All Japan and... and uh, pro- probably so. Probably so. So was it? It's they have contracts with the TV company, but day to day for rest. I guess outside the TV tapings, they're paid by the promoter. Yes, okay. basically, that's what I get. Would gather from it. So, so eight, and I'm curious when this would have changed. So, are the so I didn't realize that. So, were the network paying wrestlers on top of paying the rights fee? It was all hand in hand. Okay. I think it all just worked together in some some deal, so. Like, we are going to pay this much between the rights fee and what goes to the wrestlers or whatever. Okay. Yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't explain it. I can't explain the way it worked. Okay, so what else do we have here? Um, pretty early post-Cobra for Takano, right? Uh, yeah. Well, he'd been working at Takano throughout 87, basically. But he's still a junior heavyweight, right? Uh, no. Oh, he is a heavyweight. Oh, that's interesting mm-hmm. that Owen's beating him, then. Well, setting up the uh, junior title match. Yeah. Although Owen is also a a six-foot-tall junior heavyweight, but in, you know, 1987 New Japan. Um, so what else do we have here that I wanted to talk about? I forgot Miyato even started in New Japan. Or was he... Or did he start an original UWF and they go to Japan? Or was he in straight New Japan originally? Well, they were UWF guys, but were for all New Japan. You got to remember that, Bix. I mean, they weren't New Japan dojo guys. They were UWF guys. 
Some of them were, though. I mean, of the era that after the UWF originally guys originally left. I'm trying to check when Miato made his debut, though. Miato and Nakano were UWF guys. Are you sure? I thought Nakano... Suzuki, Suzuki and Fanaki were New Japan Dojo guys. Okay, you're wrong. Miato's earliest matches are New Japan. Oh, no, wait, sorry, it's UWF. I misread it. Of course, again, listen to me, Big. No, my <laughs> eyes were deceiving me because I was I'm being I was being stupid. I wasn't looking at the actual listen. result. I was looking at the logo and before zooming in, the original UWF logo looks enough like the New Japan logo that it's one of these off. days. That's so he only has one match and then they close. But <sighs> Nakano so we were talking about Nakano and Anjo though. One of them, I think, was in New Japan before first EWF, right? No. I could have sworn one of them was. No. But I mean, so, uh, let's see. Okay, Anjo, you're right. I'm trying to think if there's something I'm, someone I'm confusing them with, then. Man, I'm just misremembering because they're booked as Young Lions, basically. It's probably that, I guess. Um... I do they? Yeah, do, yeah. Like they don't have a point where they're really, like, other than the pushed UWF guys, no one really gets beyond that level, right? In New Japan, of the UWF guys who jump when UWF closes, I guess. Jump I mean, more. I mean, they're young boys. They're, they're still treated as young boys, just like Kensuke was from All Japan, because Kensuke was All Japan before he came to New Japan with Choshu. So, but. In UWF, because there's the smaller roster and less shows, they're more featured than they were in Japan. Well, yeah. But anyway, if you have never seen this stuff, find it however you can find it. Because it's, the elimination match is, is tremendous, and the junior time match is pretty damn good, too. That one might be <clears throat> on New Japan World. I'm not sure. <clears throat> All Japan women. They ran Omiya Skate Center in Saitama for Friendship 87 on September 14th. We have an uh, opening match of Erika Shishido, Nobuko Kimura, and Angie Minnelli going against Sayuri Nakajima, Mitsuko Nishiwaki, and Mika Komatsu. Yes, and of course, uh, Shishido and Kimura are Aja Kong and Bison Kimura. Mm-hmm. In a tag league, the best match. We have Bull Nakano and Kondor Saito going to, uh, an, I guess, an unknown winner, middle contest, whatever, with Dump Matsumoto and Karu Keiji. Kage, wouldn't it be? Kage, whatever. Then you got a Triple WA tag title match where Yumi Ogura and Kazuhiro Nagaori retained over a Drill Nakame and Kubiko Iwamoto. And then another tag league, the best match, Chigusa Nagai on Linus Asuka. Faced off with Itsuki Yamazaki and Nuria Tatena, so Crush Giles against the Jumping Bob Angels. Hmm. No winner listed. Okay, so... I mean, we'll get into in a second the whole thing with how we have such spotty All-Japan women results in this era. But... Keiru Kage? I just looked her up. It appears she has no cage match profile and her wrestling data profile only has three matches. And that's for someone who is in Dump Stable. Um, so, okay. Is it just the the degree to which the two sides of the business are kept completely separate still at this point? Like, 
were the magazines covering all Japan women? They were, right? Like, why is there so little results uh, out in the eighties? I can't tell you. I don't. I don't know. But the magazines were covering all Japan women, right? Yes. And the resources, I think, that people use, like, like on the German sites for the New Japan and All Japan and UWF results, and are the magazines and the, you know, special things put out by the magazines and all that. So why is All Japan Women so bad until the next boom starts? Like, I, I looked at some point relatively recently, like, you look at Cage Match and Wrestling Data, the more complete results start when that interpromotional boom period starts. It's really weird. Because it's like, it's not like they're be not being covered in the magazines. So, why do we only have these, like, occasional incomplete lineups and all that? Yes, there's New Japan tours in the late 80s where there's no results for shows. There's only maybe, like, one or two cars. That's New Japan. Not, not a lot, though. Uh, more than you know. Okay. More than you know. Especially 88 and 89. Especially 89. Hmm. So, it happens. All right, let's go to England. All-Star Wrestling Tape TV in Bradford. At St. George's Hall, Bradford, West Yorkshire. We have a British heavy middleweight title match. Fit Finley beat Chick Cullen by referee stoppage to win the championship. Flash Jordan, Mike Mike Flash Jordan over Jim Brakes. Steve Taylor over Rocky Moran. Kung Fu over John Kenny. Then in a world heavyweight title match, Kendo Nagasaki beat Wayne Bridges to win the title, and that's British Kendo Nagasaki. And Johnny South went to a double count-out with Neil Sands. And this is fairly early in the brief all-star on ITV era. Because mm -hmm. they started on World of Sports splitting time with joint promotions in WWF. Mainly with joint promotions. WWF was like twice a year earlier in 87. And then it's what, an end of 88 that it's canceled? Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's it's interesting when you like how much how much like proper like world of sport like original TV have you seen? Not the wrestling channel versions. Not a whole hell of a lot. But have you seen like have you seen the wraparounds they do on the all star stuff and whatnot that's not there on the joint promotion stuff? It's been it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I can't tell you. So they do change stuff up a little. There's, there are like pre-tape promos and uh, graphics a little bit in a way there wasn't really with joint, but it's mainly still the same type of show. It's not, it's not like how when All Star had uh, satellite wrestling on Screen Sport a year or two earlier, and that was more of an Americanized TV show with angles and stuff. This is not that. But it is a little bit more of a modernized presentation than Joint was putting on. Um, and am I looking at this right? Okay, yeah, so All-Star debuted with the first episode of 87, taped on December 27th, 86, and that is the... What a way to start the, that brief era to the show that was headlined by Kendo Nagasaki versus Iron Fist Clive Myers in the Disco Ladder Match. You have seen the Disco Ladder match, right? Yeah, and a while back, yeah. Yes. 
I don't know if I can even describe it. Just look it up, people, if you have not seen it. Um, <coughs> and, of course, as well, always, not that we talk about it much, just so a reminder, if you want to find out about all the TV tapings and air dates and, you know, find Im- embeds chronologically for all the videos, itvwrestling.co.uk from our uh, good friend John Lester. Yes. All right, let's go to Canada, Ontario. September 17th in London, Ontario, as part of the Western Fair, saw a free grandstand show draw 6,500 fans. As Sergeant Slaughter used the uh, Cobra Clutch to beat his buddy, the Russian assassin, Don Knodel, Tony Atlas beat Johnny K-9, plus Chris Carter and Scott Rex Steiner, younger brother of UWS Rick Steiner, who were briefly in UWF as Scott Sanders, beat Johnny K-9 and Don Kent, plus in the prelims, a guy called the Mandingo Warrior, which is certainly original. Dr. D. David Schultz and Mad Dog Vashon were no-shows. David Lee George Cannon helped set this one up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I could see that. I mean, it's Detroit and Montreal people, so yes. Well, in London, Ontario, too. That's a Cannon city. Yeah. Um, so we're assuming 6,500 is number of people actually in the grandstands? I mean, it's it's a fair show. No, but I'm saying, or, or are we saying it's 6,500 people at the fair? I'm, no, I'm going to say there's probably, that's who, probably the amount of people that was at the show. But it's a fair show, so you... It's you, you presumably just, included with the fair, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, you're, they're not buying tickets for the wrestling. It's part of the show. Yeah. The man didn't it, it, It's an water. event. And yeah, I mean, Scott Steiner's there because, I mean, he's working for Bruiser. Chris Carter worked for Bruiser. I mean, there's that, that hookup, but yes... Don Canodal and Slaughter were at a, a lot of places doing that match where Canodal was playing the Russian assassin. Was he under a mask or? Yes, absolutely. Okay. But how about, how about the Mandingo Warrior? That's. Uh, yeah. 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 Now, here's the thing, though. Do you think they're basing it on the Dingo Warrior? We have Mandingo Warrior. Or do you think it's a coincidence? Um, I don't know. I got to see who the Mandingo Warrior is. I don't know. Right. If he's doing it like if he's doing an Ultimate Warrior type character, then he's the and it's clearly Dingo Warrior inspired. But yeah. yeah, all right. AWA is close to reaching a deal with Milt of Ruskin to do a TV taping in Toronto and run live shows in Ontario. Is Milt done with the Montreal's done? Oh yeah, I was just gonna say. Wait, yeah, Montreal. I wasn't sure exactly when in 90. That now, now, they don't run shows in Ontario until 88. Okay. But they do run shows there. No TV tapings, but they do run shows there. In fact, our very own Robert O'Connor, uh, the, the, his very first pro wrestling show was the AWA uh, show in Ontario. Okay. Yeah. Didn't Melton Ruskin do some of George Hand's TV too? Uh, Yes. All right, now, let's, speaking of Robert O'Connor, let's go to Stampede Wrestling. Corporal Kirshner's in as he started on September the 18th. Well, Colonel Kirshner. Colonel, he become, not at first. Not at first. Because I watched that a while back. Uh, he was Corporal Kirshner for maybe a couple of weeks before they made him Colonel. I guess Vince may have said something to somebody. Yeah, I, I don't know my uh, military ranks well, which is actually the higher rank. Colonel. Okay, so at least he got a promotion. Yes. One point, someone brought up that David forgotten when it comes to the Zodiac. 
name for Barry Orton is that his father, Bob Orton Sr., used the mass Zodiac gimmick in California and South in the Southeast in the early seventies, which is true. He did, but not he used well, the name in the mask. He didn't use the same gimmick. Well, of course not. All right, we'll talk about that in this. We'll talk about more about the Zodiac in a minute. All right, Edmonton on the twelfth, we have Beef Wellington, Beef Wellington over Mister Hito, Fumihiko Nakura over Goldie Rogers, Fumihiro Nakura, not Fumihiko. Jerry Morrow, Champagne Jerry Morrow over Chris Benoit by disqualification. British come with mid heavyweight title. Johnny Smith beat Gama Singh by countout. Gama retain, and Jason the Terrible Muck and Singh in the Zodiac defeated Bruce Hart, Hiroshi Hase, and Brian Pillman. And Hase is, un- is unmasked as Hiroshi Hase here. I forgot that Nakura came back much less unmasked. I mean, came back to Calgary, specifically. Yeah. Uh, he may have been Viet Cong Express 2 here. Because he came back with the gimmick while Hiroshi Hase was working unmasked. Mm, isn't Viet Cong 2 here Sasazaki? No. Who was the se- but wasn't the se- wasn't the second Viet Cong to Sasaki? Um, it gets kind of confusing. <laughs> we're about we're about to get into it. Okay. All right, September eighteenth, uh, in Calgary, and they've already done the turn, so we're about to get into that. Uh, Four eight hundred fans at uh, Beef Wellington over Randy Thatcher, Johnny Smith over Mr. Hito, Corporal Kirshner over Goldie Rogers in thirty seven seconds. Kershaw's in a thoroughly obnoxious bay face and least talented wrestler in the circuit to boot. He cut some amazing promos, though. Mucka Singh and Champagne Jerry Morrow beat Hiroshi Hase and Viet Cong Express number two. When Viet Cong two lowered the roast to Hase tumbling over, then Gama appeared in a Kong costume, piled of Hase on the floor and was counted out of the ring. Gama, Muck, and Morrow and Kong number two all beat up on Hase until Kershaw made the save. So there's the big turn on Hase there by Kong yeah. two. And Cage Match at least does have Sasazaki as a Viet Cong number two. Yeah. Which is so, what I thought. It's just now that Nakura's back, what does that mean? Yeah. And then the main event was an elimination tag as Bad Company, Brian Pillman, who wrestles like a Japanese wrestler, Dave said. Bruce Hart and Chris Benoit beat Kama Singh, Jason Terrible, and Zodiac. Benoit was pinned first after Jason did a headbutt at the top rope. Pillman and Zodiac went out together in 21 minutes, leaving Bruce with, uh, excuse me, Owen. No, it was Bruce. Bruce with Jason and Gama, because Owen's in Japan. Bruce was getting creamed until Hase came out, pulled Jason over the top, eliminated him, and finally Bruce tossed out Gama in 27-15. The talent in this match is some of the most underrated around. It's no secret that as Barry O, Zodiac was one of the best jobbers of Titan, but given the chance to wrestle hard, he's a lot more talented than Dave imagined and executes every move in the book to perfection. Dave dares say he's every bit as good as his older brother was in his prime. That's high praise. High praise. And Barry was a hell of a talent. I don't know if I'd go that far here, but he was a hell of a talent. Yeah. And the Zodiac gimmick was a great gimmick. But he had a lot of problems. Yes, he had his issues. Yeah. Bad News Allen appears on TV each week making challenges, but is a wrestling due to out-of-the-ring problems. He cracks Dave up when he calls Kirshner a Girl Scout. Hmm. I wonder what that out-of-the-ring problem would be. I don't since not, know. Since Dave is not saying injury. Uh, what's also up with a, him and Cuban at this time? Uh, Cuban's not here. Hmm. 
And like I said, Cuban in uh, New Japan is Dave Sierra. Okay. So, I don't know. Um, this is a weird era because Bad News goes heel, but him and Ed Whalen still like friends for weeks. <laughs> and Ed tries to explain away Bad News being a heel. When he first comes back in the spring, yeah. It's really fun to, funny to watch, watch Ed Whalen dance around all that. Where he's being charmed by bad news, because... Yeah. Because, yeah, he still wants him to be good news, Alan, like he was when yeah. he came back in 85, when he demanded that he turn uh, babyface. Yeah. Owen Hart's back in two weeks. Owen's appearing on a TV commercial in Calgary for a local photo store. Well, Owen's getting some little TV time there. All right, let's go to Mexico. September 16th. Of course, if you see September 16th in Mexico, Dia de la Independencia, the Independence Day, the big major day. Major day in Mexico for uh, wrestling shows. So, Arena Mexico, we got a show here on Wednesday. We got Hirokozu Hata, Nekusano, and Yoshiro Sai, our best of Savaje, Cimarron Negro, and Guerrero Negro. Vianos won four and five over Milo Chavez Jr., Tony Arce, and Volcano. Esther Malena, Lola Gonzalez, and Rosa Moreno of Irma Gonzalez, Lorena de Villa, and Patera Serena. Cien Caras, Mascajero de Smil, Universal de Smil, the Dinamitas, over Signo, Nega Navarro, and Pirata Morgan. Pirata re- replaced the Tejano in the match. Injury-related. And in Relivos Incredibles match, we have Sangre Chicana, Viana Tercero, over Paraguayo Satanico. But everyone bought, was fighting, fighting each other, so... There's that. Anniversario, two days later, on the 18th, 12,680, 53rd anniversario. We have MS Uno and Satanico over Kung Fu and Ray Mendoza, the father. Eddie Guerrero and Io de Santo over El Dandy and Io de Gladiador. Best match of the night. Uh, DQ finishes second like fall when Dandy and Mas Santo. Then we have Blue Panther, Herodas, and Manuel Escobedo over Lee's Mark. Rayo de Lisco Jr. and Rayo de Lisco, the father, senior. The debut of the Killer Machines. A trio didn't last very long, a Panther, Herodas, and Escobedo, which, uh, as noted here, that unit changes quickly. Then we have a Caballero, Coach Caballero match. It's Perata Morgan defeated Tony Salazar. You got his head shave. Then we have the Guerrero brothers, Chavo, Hector, and Mondos. All four Guerreros worked this show. They beat Gran Marcus, the father. Grand Marcus Jr. and Sangre Chicana when the father fouled Chavo. And then our main event. And an excellent match this is. Mascara contra Mascara. Muguer defeated Ascharo to take his mask, who was a mask as Jorge Haracha. And uh, I'm drawing a blank. Ascharo remasks as who? Are you blanking on this too? I'm trying to remember. I'm looking it up. <clears throat> I don't think he remasked, Bix. I'm thinking of Charter Hylusco. Yeah, he didn't remask. Yeah, Charter Hylusco's Because he lost, who... he, he lost his hair to Conan in one of Conan's first big matches. Um, And yeah, he just... He, he never was the same guy after losing this match, basically. This was his last major match. So... Great, uh, great look, though, with the gear, with the playing card theme. And... Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. UWA. September 13th. Torre de Cuatro Carenos. 
Espacio Negro and Recobra went to a draw with Gallego and Rosado Ruiz. Yoshirasai, Hurakoso Hata and Nokesano over El Bronco, Rakesatana and Romano Garcia. Babyface, Scorpio over Black Man and El Fantasma. Huracan Ramirez, Nismark and Realisco Jr. over Anablaco Jr., Tatabadna Jr. and Fishman. And then Caballero contra Caballero, Paraguay over Scorpio. Take it as hair, that's a major match. Yeah. And then the Dia de Lens Independencia match. UW Heavyweight title. Only one match listed in the results. Connect retained over Brazo de Plata. Some pretty good looking shows this week. Oh, yeah. Puerto Rico. Ponce. Coliseo Juan Pachin Vicente on September 15th for the 9,500 fans. We have Cipriano Armenteros over Armando Sagado. Miguel Perez, Miguelito Perez Jr. over the Crusher. That's Rip Morgan. Well, no, he's Miguel Perez Jr. He's Miguelito because he's Miguel Jr. Yeah, but they call him Miguelito Perez. You know, it's whatever. So I'm saying uh, he, he, he can be Miguelito Perez or he can be Miguel Perez Jr. He can't be Miguel, Miguelito Perez Jr. Whatever. Tony Atlas over Iron Sheik. Renegade Warriors, the Unbloods, defeated the Hunters. Bob Brown and Dale Vizio to win the WC tag titles. So wait, are they the Hunters or are they... Whatever Bob they're Brown, called. Dale Vizzi. Because the, the results have them as Bob Brown and Dale Vizzi. Well, that's me. Okay. They don't have Hunter names, Biggs. But are they they're... called the Hunters? Yes. Is Bambi with them? Uh, I don't remember if she worked in Puerto Rico with or not. Okay. Uh, WC, WC Junior title. Urakakasio Junior defeated uh, Galan Mendoza to win the championship. Gustav Mendoza for UWF. And Universal Heavyweight title in a barbed wire match. Carlos Colon won the title for Hercules Ayala. So lots of title changes here for WC. And this is in, in the anniversary time for them, too. And so, who's uh, the crusher here? Rip Morgan. I said that. Okay. Sorry. What a generic right. name to just recycle. I mean, obviously there was – well, I guess the crusher was the crusher. So it's, it's he just, never for, and he never, but he never were Puerto Rico, so and it just seems like a weird name to give Rip Morgan. I don't know. And this is this is his second run there. He was, was he? Uh, what was he previously? Was the he Crusher? Crusher? Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's presumably uh, John John Boyd got him booked there. I would think. Or, or actually, no, they they're falling out actually. So maybe it would be well, Luke or Butch. It's probably Luke and Butch. <laughs> well, actually, wait. Which one isn't he? Re- is he relate? Isn't he related to one of them as a shoot? Uh, yeah. But which one? I don't remember. Anyway. But it, yeah, anyway. All right. That's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So that's some great 1987 commercial. We have to the halftime seven of the show, where we'll talk about our Patreon. We'll uh, talk about the streaming partners, of course, with the plugs. And we'll come back, and we'll go back to America, where we have the new Tennessee stud being crowned in Continental. Gang Wars in Memphis. World-class business going in the toilet, and much, much more after the break. If a woman wants to succeed in business, does she have to act like a man? You can make it big in business and still allow yourself to be a woman, especially if you use your savvy. Savvy, the magazine you use to make business work for you. Use your savvy to learn what to do when you're smarter than your boss. The wrong way to write your resume. The right way to quit your job. When an office romance can lead to profit, 
or loss. How to throw a great dinner party an hour after you get home. Subscribe now. Get one year 12 Savvy Issues for only $11.97, more than 50% off the newsstand price. Call 1-800-338-4300. As a free gift, this extraordinary 60-page handbook, Winning Strategies for the Woman Manager. Read Savvy for just one year. If you don't get a promotion in that very same year, we'll refund your money. You can't lose. So call for Savvy now. 1-800-338-4300. 1-800-338-4300. Cheese, glorious cheese. So sumptuous and luscious. Cheese, marvelous cheese. Makes everything scrumptious. For exciting new ways to make your meals sing, come on into your grocers today. Get new cheese ideas and a great variety of real cheeses that'll get you cooking. Make your meal sing with real cheese. When babies teed, their little mouths go through big pains. Stop it with new baby Ambisol because it gives temporary relief on contact. With just one touch of new baby Ambisol, teething pain is gone. New alcohol-free baby Ambisol. You can see a different movie three times a day, every weekday at 4 and 11 p.m. Eastern, and now at 9 a.m. Eastern weekday mornings. Take a break. The Lifetime Movie Break. <laughs> She's an anthropologist on a mission. I'm looking for Dr. Esslinger. With a little friendly persuasion, he's going to help. That's nice. And boy, does she need it. What are we going to do? Run like hell. Deborah Raffin. <laughs> and Peter Fonda. <laughs> star in The Dance of the Dwarfs. Tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern, here on Lifetime. This Lifetime Minute is brought to you by Prell. There are two magic words in makeup that can do wonders to bring out the best in your face. In just a moment, I'm going to tell you what they are. Okay, into the showers. Let your body with the Pro One Two. The conditioner is new. One shampoo in, body in, body in, fullness in. Pro Body Two. New Pro Protein Enriched Conditioner. Conditioner in, protein in, condition in, control in. That's Pro Body. Full body shampoo. And new Pro Conditioner. It's my bodybuilding system for hair. Your face structure and definition are highlighting and shading. Using a lighter base or cover-up and a damp sponge, apply a highlight under the eyes, on the bridge of the nose, over the smile lines between the mouth and the nose, under the chin, on the bones of the forehead, on the eyelids, and above the cheekbones. With a darker color and a damp sponge, apply shading to the hollows beneath the cheekbone, the tip of the nose, the other cheekbone, on the jaw to narrow it, a subtle shadow on the inside corner of each eye. Then blend both the highlighting and the shading with makeup base and you've got bone structure, the basis of all beautiful faces. Tomorrow on Lifetime. <laughs> Comedian Harry Shearer is my very special guest on the Dr. Ruth Show right here on Lifetime. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed all those great 1987 commercials as a pivot to the halftime segment of the show. We'll begin talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And we've already recorded 
part of our next show, Todd is God. A look at uh, the Todd Gordon autobiography with Sean Oliver. And right now we're up to the point where Eddie Gilbert has been replaced as the booker of ECW in our recording. And, um, I mean, we haven't got a whole lot into the Todd book part yet. Yeah. But, I mean, that will be coming as we do this. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's some, the backstories, of course, stuff we've talked about before on the show. So you're going to have a little bit of repeat information on that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting to hear Todd's side of things so far. And uh, definitely going to be more interesting as we get into the Paul Heyman era of ECW. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend this. Uh, recommend this show to everybody when it comes out in a couple of weeks. And you can do that for $5 a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets. And this show will close out our seventh year of the Patreon. So seven full years. So 84 shows. 83 shows now, 84 at the end of the month. Lots and lots and lots of audio. That's just the monthly shows. We have other secondary shows on there too we've done years ago. And we'll have a mailbag show coming up soon. So um, good to get that back going again. So uh, hope to try to get that more regular. But yeah, so... Five dollars a month gets you access to all that all, great audio at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. Twenty-five dollars that gets you the chance to pick a show for the week, which we'll have next week. More than that in few, just a few minutes. Uh, if you want to have a show, then uh, have two shows in your mind, just in case the show that you may want us to do, maybe something we've already done already, or it could be uh, something that somebody else has already picked out on the calendar. Uh, get with Bix and myself and uh, tell us why you want to do the show and we'll try to make sure that that works out to your advantage. Follow the protocol on the Patreon website to get that information out to Bix and we'll go from there. Remember also the 10-year rules in effect, 30-day rules in effect. Please get that before 30 days of your show and um, Monday, Tuesday to Wednesday to Tuesday excuse me, on the, on the timeline of the year that we're doing the show. Recording the show, that is. So get all that done, and uh, it should be good to go. $50 allows you to send in for a segment of the show, and 100 for the whole show. That's if you choose. At patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Big, so we have to thank this week as our new and or returning patrons. All right, just a few. We've got Kyle Schroeder. Thanks, Kyle. Brian Bennett. Thanks, Brian. And Marshall Enlow. Thanks, Marshall. So we thank all your new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have been there along the way, patrons that have left, come back. We thank everybody for your patron. It's Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. Uh, our streaming friends always have stuff going on, Big. So what's going on in that universe this week of Fight TV and IWTV? All right, on IWTV, first uh, looking at VOD editions, a uh, few archival Jersey All Pro Wrestling shows went up. And they appear to all be all women shows from uh, 2009. We've got Female Revolution, A Queen is Crowned, and Girl Power. Which one should I pick to, re to see what the lineup looks like? Yeah, I don't care. You don't have a preference from the names of those girls? Let's go with Girl Power, I guess. All right, so Girl Power 
so we've got, I guess, do we start? I guess I'll start from... Okay, this is in order. All right, so there's a number one contendership match. Cheerleader Melissa versus Haley Hatred, which, is she still around at all? No idea. Okay, uh, Sassy Steffi, who, another I don't know where she went for, just Fate, which is a name I don't remember. Annie Social, another name who's disappeared, versus Autumn Breeze, then Annie Social versus Mia Yim, WWE's... She's still technically also Mia Yim, right? It's just she's Machine. Me, me, Machine. Machine. Whatever. Machine. Uh, Allison Wonderland versus Brittany Force. Allison Danger taking on Ariel. Who was who was New Jersey Indie Ariel? I don't remember if that's uh what's her face or not. Um and women's title match, Sarah Del Rey defending against your leader Melissa. And also there's a bonus match, I guess, from another show of Sarah Del Rey against Sumi Sakai. So that and two other uh, similar shows are up on demand now on IWTV. And as far as live stream, a few things coming up this week. Uh, we start with our friends at the Premier Wrestling Federation on the Crystal Coast of North Carolina with their 8th annual Premier Tag League. And, uh, and that's on Friday at 7 Eastern. In addition to the tag tournament, it also includes Colby Carino defending the Crystal Coast Championship against Donnie Ray. Uh, oh, no, it's also, oh, excuse me, defending that and his NWA World Junior Heavyweight title against Donnie Ray. Winner takes all title match. So that is coming up on Friday at 7. So then uh, Freelance has a show also on Friday starting at 9 Eastern, which the PWF shows run on the shorter side, so there shouldn't be too much overlap if someone wants to check out both. Freelance has a show they are calling uh, Once Upon a Time in Freelance 2023, show that includes uh, Brian Keith and Storm Grayson taking on the former Bang Bros, uh, Laney Luck and GPA defending the tag titles against Swoggle and Colt Cabana, Shaz McKenzie versus Shoko Nakajima, and more. So that's freelance. Uh, ETU, Expect the Unexpected Wrestling, has a show at the H2O Wrestling Center on Saturday at 3 Eastern, titled uh, Nostalgia Ultra. I don't know what that's even supposed to mean. Uh, Alec Price defending the IWTV world title against Brandon Kirk. Uh, IWTV tag titles, Miracle Generation defending against Fresh Air. And more. And so a little less loaded than some of their other shows have been, but still some good-looking stuff on there. And, hey, Chris, ICW No Holds Barred has a show. Surprise. I know. But that's Saturday at 8 Eastern from, where are they running here? Oh, at the HOL Wrestling Center, of course. Well, at least, I mean, at least there are people are getting work, which is always a good thing. Yes. So that show includes uh, Hoodfoot defending the American Deathmatch Championship against Brandon Kirk, Matt Tremont against Reed Bentley, Cruel, it doesn't say if it's for the quote-unquote IWTV title against Dr. Redacted, uh, John Wayne Murdoch versus MM3, Colby Carino versus Tommy Vendetta, and more. And then H2O on Sunday at 7 Eastern has their 200th show, Spectacular. Uh, with what the hell is this? 
Okay, so locked up slash cuffed to the cage. So I guess this is the USWA Thunderdome gimmick? <laughs> if it's steel cage with handcuffs, basically? Rage in a cage. Thunderdome. Yeah. So it's uh, Team Tremont against Team President's Cabinet. I do not know who these people are. Uh, H2O tag titles also on the line, among other things. So there's that. Uh, I mean, getting to the hundreds of shows is an achievement for any independent promotion. Oh, yeah. Even even if it only took two years. Oh, Johnny Cashmere's on the show. He's, I guess, coming out of retirement to take on Declan Grant. That's interesting. I don't think he's been retired. I think he just doesn't work a lot. You know what I mean. And then I guess the biggest show of the weekend on IWTV, Sunday at 10 Eastern, Prestige, The Respect Issue, live from the Globe Theater in Los Angeles, uh, California, for a show that includes Trisha Dora against Shoko Nakajima, Lee Moriarty against Jonathan Gresham, Titus Alexander against Ray Orus, Alex Shelley versus the former Tyler Breeze, Filthy Tom Lawler against Vinny Massaro, Galeno de, Del Mall, the large adult son of Dr. Wagner Jr. against Dinistia, uh, Johnny Robbie taking on Shaz McKenzie, uh, Diego Hill versus Alan Angels versus Travis Williams versus Jordan Cruz, and Sonico versus Gregory Sharp. So, usual solid looking prestige show there. So, if you're not already an IWTV subscriber, Go to independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD at sign up, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So, tiny... Why do I keep doing that? Independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. I believe there's also a tiny URL that autofills it. That's in the description. So, meanwhile, fight. Uh, what do we have here? Uh, DOA in the UK has a show coming up on... Thursday at 3 Eastern. I think that's in, just mentioning that because I think that's a new promotion that's been added. Uh, Santino Brothers has a show at 5 Eastern on Friday. So wait, yeah, that's weird. That's an afternoon show. Hood Slam's got a show coming up at uh, midnight Eastern, so 9 local time on uh, Friday night as well. So... Nothing huge this week, but some fun-looking shows. You talking about on Fight TV? I thought I said Fight. I'm just asking. Yeah, it's on Fight Plus. Yes. So what about uh, Eric Clapton? Yeah, that's not on Fight Plus. That's a separate pay-per-view, apparently. But it's on Fight, isn't it? Hopefully, he doesn't talk about the Jews during a concert. But anyway. <laughs> I have no idea if it's an old concert or a new concert or what, either. That's the thing. But it's on there. Yeah, they've been adding more music and stuff and soccer. I don't really understand why, but they have been. So for you no folks that may be interested in non-wrestling stuff, there you go. Yes, I haven't really explored that part of uh, Fight Plus or the high pay-per-views, but tinyurl.com slash btsfight, that's B-T-S-F-I-T-E. Either when you sign up for your subscription or uh, if you get an iPay-Per-View and we'll get a referral fee out of that. So tinyurl.com slash B-T-S-F-I-T-E. Today's episode Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. You've been using incognito mode, you're in social survivors for storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. 
Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic to one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. If a service in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices. The rock-solid privacy policy, open source security, advanced customization settings, just rank the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. If you sign private internet access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go over that, shall we? we got three options for you. We've got a, a monthly option of eleven ninety five a month. You can go yearly at $3.33 a month for thirty nine ninety five a year. Or you can go three years plus four free months, $1.98 a month, $79 for the first two years. Yearly thereafter, 83% off. Best damn deal in the market. Why is that? Because it's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, take advantage of private international 30 day risk free challenge. Try it for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just turn it for a full refund. Well, how do you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash tweeting sheets to try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back to 1992. Yes, I know we just did 1992, but it is a Patreon requested show by Matthew Finney. It's going to be a short show because it's only a five-day show and we don't have a Saturday again. So no Saturday TV during our week. But we do have some interesting stuff. And the reason why he wanted to do the show is because he attended the WFTV tapings during our week. We had uh, tapings in Winnipeg and Brandon, Manitoba. So uh, some stuff on there talking about some interesting debuts. Two of them that really pissed off Jim Cornette. So uh, they'll have that angle to go along with it. Um, And we got other WF news. We'll have uh, other news from the territory. Well, territory from the indie scene. And uh, we got that. We got all the international stuff. And in WCW, we have more wackiness going on there and kind of, uh, you know, pick up from where we was at uh, last week. But this time, Cowboy Bill Watts talks to Dave Meltzer. So there's a lot going on there. So it should be a very, very interesting show just for that stuff. So that's all next week on Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R, show proper at P-T, she's five, Bix at David Bix. And uh, I guess kind of a quiet week this week, Bix, uh, for the first time in wrestling after a while of a lot of uh, stuff going on. Yeah, relatively quiet. Um, and Jade Cargill, Cargill, Jade Cargill is absconding from AEW, but... That's the way it looks. Although, uh, Raj Geary, you're, uh, I don't know if I say ex boss or whatever he is. Um, he, uh, he thinks she's going to stay in AEW, but who knows? We'll see. But she's a free agent no matter what. So, coming up. So, her contract's coming out, and Ricky Starks' contract's coming due soon. So, and the quote unquote hiring freeze in WWE is over, even though Nia Jax got hired last month. And Brian Pillman Jr. And Brian Pillman Jr. Otta Johnson got the juice. But, uh... I don't think she's responsible for Brian Pillman Jr. No, but Nia Jax, I mean, we know the deal. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there is that. So, I guess, I mean, we're about to get into the year 2024. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, 
how far AEW is willing to go to keep talent and who wants to leave for something different for some, uh, new horizons. So yeah, it should be interesting, but I mean, what can I say? It was quite weak. I kind of forget. We had the, 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 the merger was finalized this week. And so we now have TKO holdings. But, I mean, it ended up being re- fairly low key, though. So it's, it's not like a ton of real news came out. No, of it. but still, it's. I mean, the era of Vince McMahon, it's world wrestling entertainment is over, in a sense. He doesn't have ownership or whatever. You I mean, he has him. ownership. He he has like sixteen percent ownership, but he doesn't have special voting control anymore. So He's his not- power is strictly as the chairman, but. It what it means basically is that if things get to the point where he gets forced out again, then he can't reinstall himself the way he did last time. Yes. So I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how all that goes to see how he can ha- how he handles that. You know, that's the thing that you know it has that hasn't been talked about enough, in my opinion. Is how is Vince going to handle this because? Like he just now has got back in and, you know, from his spinal surgery or whatever you want to call it, and has started making changes to TV again. And he's still going to be, you know, doing that type of stuff, but he's now not the the guy that is the, the last – he's not the, the final straw, so to speak, anymore. You know, he doesn't have – have that so if they want to make a decision you know the higher ups will make a decision that vince may not agree with then he's kind of got to deal with it so i'm just wondering how that how his psyche is going to be able to handle him not being the sole numero uno in charge I don't have the the chart in front of me but if i remember right it's that vince mcmahon and dana white answered to Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro, right? Uh, basically, yes. We'll see. And now Dana White, for some reason, I don't think they explain why, Dana White is no longer president of the UFC. He is now CEO of the UFC. Yeah. And now you got, you know, Nick Khan is talking about uh, dual UFC, WWE, All-Star Weekend, and all that type of stuff. I mean, that could be interesting to see how they play it, where both of them are in the same city. On the on the same weekend, yeah. I mean that could be interesting to see. I did like uh, was it Lawrence Epstein that was talking all that shit about how well WWE fans need to become USC fans, USC fans need to become WWE fans, and Dana White was basically just said, "Shut up, Mark." <laughs> in a way, in his own way. I mean, the honestly, the most interesting thing coming out of this so far is that. You know, UFC was part of public endeavor, but it was not a public company on its own. In this spinoff, the stock has not gone up. It's basically hovering right where WWE was. Yeah. I guess it's a wait and see. Yeah. You know, it's a wait and see what's going to happen. I mean, something I'm kind of wondering, too, if this leads to anything. Because Vince got, just from his stock shares being cashed in, he got over $100 million, right? He got a nice little payday. <laughs> I'm curious what the last time Vince had this much cash was. 
just if there's anything else he ends up wanting to do with it. Well, you look at, I mean, you look at him and how he looks right now. I mean, he it definitely fits his look as you know a soap opera or some B movie villain <laughs> to be that type of have that type of money. I thought you were going to say that he looks like he's going to do the narration for Michael Jackson's Thriller. <laughs> I mean, he's not Vincent Price esque. I mean, but. Mexican drug lord, you know, I mean, that type of thing. And he looks more like Vincent twice from Sesame Street. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a new world, you know, it's a new world of wrestling. And it's, I mean, they say it's going to be business as usual and kind of, but who knows? It's, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? And, Again, how aggressive is WWE going to be and bring in new talent? Um, who's going to be let go? I mean, from what, from what I understand, it's not going to be talent as much as like office people. Right. It's going to be quote, quote unquote uh, redundancies. That's what happened when Endeavor yeah. bought UFC. So talent may not have much to worry about, but I don't know. It's it's just gonna be it's gonna be something to see how how Vince can handle this not being the alpha, the real alpha. Well, with that, I guess we should just get back to the rest of the show. All right. All right. Let's go to the territory slash indie scene now in the U.S. and we start with Jody Hamilton Deep South Wrestling and how apropos we're talking about this. Adrian Streets had the Deep South to team up with the Assassin. Jody Hamilton the feud with the Botswana Beast. As Dave knows, that Kamala clone is Snake Brown. Although Snake Brown here is Rama Brown. Tommy Rich has two more dates for Deep South before the month runs out, and that's about it. Because he'll be going to work for Jerry Blackwell when he works in Georgia from them from this point forward. So this is the point here in the Georgia indie scene where Blackwell's about to get his his group going. And Deep South's about to take a hit. And they'll become the clear number two in the state of Georgia when they were yeah. number one. And uh, Street came in. I remember that. And, few with the assa- and team with the assassin. I do remember that. And, uh, yeah, but so here's Botswana Beast here, Bex, like we were talking about earlier, you know, yeah. in 1987. You know, and when you say they were number one in the state of Georgia, I mean, you mean Georgia specific-wise. I'm not talking. Yeah, I'm not talking about uh, you know Crockett. I'm just saying that when indie promotion, right? Now that said, the promotion on Deep South and the local promotion that Deep South did as the local promoter was a big part of why the UWF Omni Show did so well. Well, yeah, they they supplied undercard matches and stuff. Yes. Oh yeah, they were a big part of it, and with Pedicino as well when Joe was working with Deep South. Yes. This is we're getting that time period where Joe and Jody Hamilton have their falling out. Yes, as we talked about in this show before. Which, by the way, you but, need to put that thing online. <laughs> the, uh, the quality is just the quality is 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 not the best. But I do. Hey, we got to see it though. The thing where uh, it's assassin portraying Joe Pettacino and all that. Yeah, I, I, I'll I'll. I have to dig it out and because it's been put away with in my mate in my uh, DVD stuff, so I have to go. Uh, I have to find it and try to get it up, just so people can see it. But yeah, the quality is shaky, but it's 1988. 
And I wish we had more of this stuff around. This is my childhood. I was lucky to get what I got of uh, Blackwell's group and some Deep South, but uh, I wish I had more. All right, well, let's go to Continental. Now, we this week's the 13th to the 18th. And the day we miss is Saturday. Uh, because we have covered those Saturdays before. We covered the 12th on show 112. And we did the 19th on show 166. So this is what you know we call a gap filler this week on the show. So we're missing the Saturday show. But we have played what we're about to talk about now on uh, show 112. So... Let's get into that. Robert Fuller's columns of New Tennessee Stud has formed the new stud stable himself. Jimmy Golden, Wendell Cooley, and Dutch Mantel turned into this group's version of the Four Horsemen. Since all these guys mentioned whole titles here. Fuller and Golden are tag champions. Cooley's continental champion. And Dutch is Southeastern champion. There's been no mention or hints of Ron Fuller, the original Tennessee Stud, returning the few of his brother. But it seems like it's too obvious an angle to pass up. They pass it up. They don't do it. And... um this is when Robert becomes the precursor to Colonel Parker right here. There's a, there's a, a, a skit, an angle where it's all the stud stable sitting at a long table where Gordon Soley and Ron West, which you played on that show one twelve, And they're all, you know, Roberts, you know, talk, you know, talking about how great the stud stable was. And, you know, Wendell Cooley is the newest member of the heels wearing his tuxedo, and um, really great stuff. And at the end, everybody's toasting each other. Even Gordon's only in Ron West in a, in a funny moment. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's um, it's really good shit. And uh, this is, like I said, the beginning of Robert being the character that he is today. Because he wasn't he wasn't that type of guy in eighty five, eighty six Continental. He was luscious Robert Fuller, you know. Yeah. And then it turns into, you know, uh, yeah, a guy who you understand in a way why WCW put him in a plantation owner gimmick. <laughs> well, he wasn't using that exaggerated uh, voice either. Well, that's what I'm saying, but he started yeah. going in that direction. As oh, he started going in, yeah, yeah, really starts picking up in Memphis. Yes. That's in the next year. But um, Wendell's in a stud stable for like a month <laughs> before he figures out, hey, I'm losing a bunch of fucking money on my damn eight by tens. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. That's not what the storyline was. It's that they're no, eating the him out. Well, the real life thing, too. That's what I'm talking about, real life thing. Oh, OK. I thought you meant in the storyline. No, 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 no. Because the storyline. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's losing. That's right. I forgot that part that. He's not selling gimmicks because he's a heel, and so he wants to turn back babyface. Then in storyline, they do the thing where the stud stable has control of his contract and all of his money, and he's worried about buying presents for his kids at Christmas, but the money that's still in his name is the money from selling pictures at the matches. Yeah, so you got a kind of a, a playoff of a real-life thing. Amazing, isn't it? Yes, and then there's a line around the building at all the Christmas week shows. Yes. But the turn is well before all that, though. Because he turns back quick. Like I said, this only lasts a month. If that. if that. Um, because the turn goes down. 
Uh, let's see here. The turn goes down on uh, October 24th. TV. When he goes back, where he t- works as the Avenger, teaming with Danny Davis to face Fuller and Golden. When he's trying to win Danny Davis over. Was it maybe Thanksgiving and not Christmas? No, it was Chris. It was Christmas. Okay. But they, but they, but it, you know, it still was the reason why he did his deal. So it still was the reason why. But great angle. But yeah, this so this is the beginning of the set stable as we would uh, know it in the future, right here. All right, Larry Thunderbolt Hamilton and Steve Armstrong both no shows at the September 14th TV taping in Birmingham. Hamilton had won the junior title from Scott Armstrong the week before. And they're about to push him, too. And they kind of still do, but still. No show your first TV after you win the title. Not good. And Stevie's on, and Stevie's basically on his way to Memphis to uh, reform with Tracy. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's for a short time. All right, so the results of the TV taping in Birmingham, we had Doug Furness over Jonathan Boyd, Johnny Rich and Scott Armstrong re- reviving the old Rat Patrol, being the Moondogs. This would be uh, Spot and Spike, Bill Smithson, by DQ. The Midnight Rock and Rollers, and that is their name here. Marty Janetti and Shawn Michaels, who aren't going as Midnight Rockers anymore since Vern Trey Bart the name, beat Los Lobos in a squash match. No, not the uh, great band. Uh, Mike Golden over Dr. Tom Pritchard in a grudge match. Two had a breakup the week before. That was two-thirds of the Wild Bunch, Jonathan Boyd. When Boyd interfered. When the Cooley won a squash, Dutch won a squash, Danny Davis won a squash. That's Nightmare Danny Davis, not uh, referee Danny Davis. The Bullet and Danny Davis and the Midnight Rock and Rollers then beat the Stud Stable. And then a Thunderdome Battle Royal, which was won by Danny Davis, who pinned Wendell Cooley at the end when Cooley was distracted by Michael Cincinnati. Now in Columbus, Mississippi, on the 18th, before 1,000 fans, at the Lavender Coliseum, love that name, we have Dr. Tom on Mike Golden when Boyd's interference backfired. Good match. Scott Armstrong and Johnny Rich, who has since quit the group, so that's another one gone, beat the Moondogs by DQ, average. Dutch Mantel over Danny Davis, one of the coolest distracted Davis, better than average. Doug Furness over Dirty White Boy. Rock, the Midnight's. And uh, Danny Davis over Fuller, Golden, and Cooley. And afterwards, Cooley wanted nothing to do with his partners. So we're already doing the deal here <laughs> the week after the TV aired. And it's done about a royal. Regular battle royal with four poles. One pole is a chain. One has a check for the mucho dinero. One has brass knucks. Other has the empty box. Came down the furnace and White Boy. White Boy got the box with the chain. Hit furnace with it many times. Furnace bladed himself six times before any blood came out, which is totally embarrassing. Anyway, Furnace finally made his comeback and tossed White Boy out to win the thing. Is this something to that where big muscle head guys have a hard time but getting juice fix? Luger Bash 88? I don't know. You think there may be something to that? Superstar Billy Graham at Starkid 85. Remember that one? Mm, where his blood, his, his blood looked pink. Ew. I think maybe because of the lighting, but still, he didn't get great juice, especially on that show with all the people that juice on that show. Although he was juicing in other ways. But, uh. Well, at that part, I'm wondering, was like there a blood pressure thing or something that maybe is causing an issue? I gotta think there's gotta be something to it. Hmm. I'm trying to think, who, who else do we know stories of where they blade and it just 
doesn't quite work. Warrior never really had a, a great one, did he? I, I can't remember Warrior ever doing a super type blade job. I mean, when did he even blade in the first place? I think he would have bladed more, probably some in world class, possibly. Carry? Carry's. Carry got decent color. Yeah. Not great. Um. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I remember that one. I mean, he's not a juiced up guy. I remember the one time Vampiro bladed and barely bled. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, the, the only person I feel like it's happened with, like, repeatedly recently, and I'm not trying to say anything or cast aspersions, I'm just thinking the people who it's happened to where they bladed and barely bled was Adam Page, who I feel like it's happened to a few times where he doesn't get but much color. Not, but he's not a juice, I mean, juice guy. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm just trying to think who else that even applies to. Like I said with Vampiro. Um, maybe? Who knows? Uh, anyway, I did look it up, and yes, Vern did trademark uh, Midnight Rockers in May. Ain't that something? <laughs> how about that Vern, huh? Or he filed for it. I wonder how many they even... How many things do we even think he did trademark? Vern may have been... Vern may have been... More, uh, you know, mentally adept than people thought. Well, you know what, though? Maybe or somebody it, else doing his name. Well, it's the Minneapolis Boxing, Minnesota Boxing Wrestling Club. It's not very yeah, personally. Could. Yeah. Um, so it's probably okay, Greg. I'm going to search owner name and address to see if there's anything else. Uh, okay, the full name didn't work, so let's see. Let's see if I just searched, I guess, Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling. Let's see. Okay. We have nine trademarks, so eight besides Midnight Rockers. Would you like to guess what they are at all? And this is uh, still holding? The only two that are still live are AWA and American Wrestling Association, which, without even clicking, I'm guessing are owned by WWE now. Yeah, WWE Properties International <sighs> owns those. Which, that's, right, like, that's so a corporate narration name I don't remember seeing before. Do you? No. All right, so AWA trademarks, um, Baron Von Raschke. Hold on, I need to go back to that tab. Uh, let's see. No. So actually, okay. yeah. So I, so it's seven. So it's six, not counting, and really it's five because one is twice. So now, there is are five. It, I need you to guess. Are these wrestlers all wrestlers? Not all. Well, shit. I mean, these ain't the ones that aren't wrestlers. Okay. So there are two wrestlers, or two wrestlers or tag teams, two acts. So the other bad, ones are... Bad company. No. Uh, nasty Boys? It can't be Nasty Boys. Yes. Really? Yes. Well, how'd they use them everywhere else? Ugh. Well, they didn't use them anywhere major for a while. Let's see when it went away. Yeah, they did. I mean, they, they went. Well, they went to NWA ninety. Well, I'm curious. When did it? No, it was abandoned in November '88. Well, there you go. All right. So, Nasty Boys. So you said two tag teams. Was that well, the two Rockers acts? Covered? So I'll tell you the other one. It's, I tell you the other one is the singles. Um. What time frame we talking here? Same like '86. 87 time frame. Is it somebody that was uh, already using that name before they went there? 
I don't think so. Okay. It's a nickname. Um, Mr. Magnificent Kevin Kelly. Yes, Mr. Magnificent. <laughs> How about that? That was, yeah, filed, wait, filed on May 22nd. Uh, so yeah, wait, let me see. Yeah, when was Nasty Boys filed? Were these all filed around the same time? Filed May 22nd. Uh, so your so your trademarks are all told AWA, American Wrestling Association, and both both of those are still live, owned by WWE, and then the rest are dead. Midnight Rockers, Mr. Magnificent, Nasty Boys, Wrestle Rock, All Star, two different All Star Wrestlings for some reason, and American Wrestling Association AWA, the Major League of Professional Wrestling, which is basically it's the logo, basically. Yeah, and that was. When did they... That was initially filed in 85. So, what do we think was the catalyst for these? Because I mean, would the Rockers figures have already been out by May 87? When did that last series come Ooh, out? Oh, I don't know, because I, I, I didn't have any of them. I don't know. I don't know. I never had those. Yeah. Never, it's, never saw them. Well, those are particularly rare, that Matt Mania series. Those I are never very saw. Valuable. I never saw those. But you saw the earlier Remco's in the stores. Oh yeah, well, I had them. Yeah, I bought them a lot. Yeah, they were all over the place. A bunch of them. Both both of those first series, the original little group and the second group. So all three of the individual of the acts that he trademarked all were May twenty second, nineteen eighty seven. That it was filed for. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder, are, are those just like, okay, these are the people I think are marketable and I'm worried if they leave? And then and then they leave because Rockers left, Kelly left, and that was when the Memphis then came back in 88. Mm-hmm. So that's funny. All right, they're pushing Doug Furness hard because he's a local football, local college football star in the University of Tennessee and one of the best powerlifters in the world, but they just think he could get over that well in, the, in neutral territory. He's improving, but his actual work is terrible, although he's got athletic potential to be sure. Even though he's super strong, his physique doesn't look like a Tony Atlas or a Road Warrior or a Warlord or a Dingo Warrior, and he's only five foot nine or at most five foot ten. Well, Doug obviously is better, but Dave's Dave's right. Furnace couldn't couldn't get over really in a neutral territory. Until he got better. But even then he I mean it's kind of unfair to Dub because, I mean, he only was brought into NWA in 1990. It wasn't really pushed. Mm. And after that, it's basically just all Japan. Yeah. You know, it's Smokey, but Smokey's fucking nozzle. Yeah. So, I mean, it's easy for him. He's one of these guys that he came too late. If he would have been in the business and, you know... In the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, he could have homesteaded in Southeast, you know. Now, real quick, I forgot to mention, so we have the Midnight Rock and Rollers for the Midnight Rockers. Not to be confused with Joseph Oldie and Al Perez as Deep Breath. Okay. The New York Rockers. Mm Mm-hmm. The Fabulous Rockers. Mm Mm-hmm. And or the Rock and Roll Rockers. Mm-hmm. Am I missing any? That's about it. Yeah, so they used all three of those interchangeably for some reason. Yeah. But anyway, back to... Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so now let's go... Or are we well, 
Actually, no, we're not. None. We're going to another uh, bastion of the southeast, Memphis. Where it's time for Wheel of Torture. The week second two. week. The yeah. second week of it. Yes. Second week of Wheel of Torture on not on September fourteenth in Memphis. Saw things turn around. So Bayface won almost every match. The car was all rematches from the September seventh show, where the heels won every match. Didn't get exact crowd, but Dave heard it was poor again. As Tracy Smothers beat the Mighty Goliath. Uh, Rock and Roll RPMs beat John Paul and Jerry Bryant. Only heel winners on the night. Billy Travis over Bobby Jaggers. Building the ever Superstar Bubba. Big Bubba doing the Superstar Bubba gimmick. Dancing Bubba. Rocky Johnson over Don Bass. Jeff Jarrett over Carl Fergie to regain them in America title, which he lost the week before. Nasty Boys retained their Southern Tag titles, which they won on TV on the 12th against Bad Company, and Jerry all over the Black Prince Brickhouse Brown, which Dave knows Nasty Boys won the belts in the studio from Bad Company. Uh, Will Torch was a cute idea. Didn't work, although one could argue with the talent pool they've got right now, there isn't much that's going to draw anyway. In which they did a takeoff on Will of Fortune with a girl, a model called Vanna Black. Yes. Yes. Five years before Dr. Dre did that on the Chronic album. Spinning a wheel to determine... Well, this Vanna Black, if I recall, just had black hair. was not a black woman. Yeah, she was actually white, yes. Um, Spinning a wheel to determine the torture that losers would have to do. Mainly things like getting shot with a cattle prod, hit with a kendo stick, lashed to a belt by fans, or eating dog food. There were others as well. Yes, well, I mean... (sighs) And Dave's going to give his thoughts on the entirety of Memphis here in a minute. But uh, it, it it they were just doing all kinds of fun shit in the summer '87. Memphis Price is Right, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, uh, wrestling's Price is Right, or as Terry Lawler's sign for it said, "Resting's Price is Right." Yeah, uh, Wheel of Torture. Um, there was a lot going on. It's very obvious Lawler is booking too. <laughs> oh yeah, very very. Who obvious. else would be doing all these game shows? Yeah, but the, the I mean, you, you saw the you heard the results there. I mean, the talent pool is a good talent pool. It's not bad. Yeah, Dave is being a little harsh. Well, let's let's hear more thoughts. Now, after watching TV these past few weeks, it's obvious this area has completely gimmicked out. The August thirty first card was all gimmick matches, with the opener being a bull rope match, and a chain on a pole, kendo stick, hickory stick, caliprod, battle of all the weapons, legal that were used earlier, two hair matches inside of a steel cage, with stipulations like Dundee shaving his head and retiring if he lost, George Brown, George Brown, George Barnes leaving town if he lost, which he did, Lawler and Don Bass, hair versus hair for the title, plus Lawler's Corvette at $5,000, and Bass putting up downtown Bruno leaving town which he, when he lost, which he did. I need a spreadsheet. <laughs> that is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of gimmicks here. This is something about psychology that Dave surprised a guy like Lawler didn't avoid. The more gimmicks on a card, the less each gimmick means. With so many gimmicks and no steps, yet the crowd was less than 5,000 fans. In the following two weeks, they followed again with all gimmick matches, and the crowd had fallen back to poverty level. Oh, no, less than 5,000 fans. The more title matches on the card, the less each one means as well, which is Crockett's big mistake with these eight title match cards because it gives them nothing to come back with. Plus, all these titles makes the important belts like Flair's not draw either because there's something nothing special about any title because everyone has one. 
This is one of the reasons Titan is more successful than Croc and retain their audience at road shows. Because only does limited gimmicks. TV focuses on one angle each week rather than overdosing on so many angles the viewer can't even recall all of them. A minute after the show ends, which renders them meaningless. Anyway, back to this area. It needs help. It's Memphis. So it's kind of a different thing. But Dave's got a, a great point as far, as far as wrestling in general. For wrestling in general, yes, and it is overly gimmicked even by Memphis standards, but he's not recognizing the difference more broadly between a weekly territory and something else. Yeah. But, I mean, we're, we've kind of seen this, you know, in wrestling today, too. AEW's had these problems. You know, WWE's had problems similar to this in the past. I mean, you're doing too much, you're killing the effectiveness of every of every one of the things you're doing, yeah. I mean, I did notice during All In, <coughs> excuse me, there were way too many no DQ matches on that show. I mean, it's just and a lot of the same. There's a lot of the same stuff going on. Booking tropes, well, yeah. and WWE does that too. I mean, both of them are very guilty of this. The same booking tropes on in, in just about every match. You know, WWE like the the famous one with WWE is. Breaking the breaking the barricade over there by uh, the ring announcer. That's one that they've done a, a lot lately. Done it too much. Um, and there's other things. And God knows when you go back to the uh, you know the Attitude Era, where they're fucking changing the world title every week on television. You know, I mean, it's just when you do shit like that, you you kill the effectiveness of, of the titles and the gimmicks. But Memphis is a different beast, like I said. Yes, because it's weekly and all that. Yeah. It's the only territory that could get away with doing it, but that said, as Dave's noting here, business is down. Uh, and it's going to go down even more. So, it's very entertaining television, though. And television's doing great ratings. So, there is that trade-off. It's yeah. I mean, the other thing, I mean, we've never talked about this that much, but like, there's a lot of Memphis in this era that the Sheets don't like for various reasons. Well, I can tell you one reason why that is. What? It's because you have people in wrestling that Sheet writers really valued their opinion on the business that shit on Memphis regularly. I mean, specifically like this period of Robert Fuller's Booker. I mean, on Memphis period. Well, no, I know that. But I mean specific like eras where the sheets are harder on Memphis than maybe it seems like they should have been at certain times. I, mean, I think in eighty I think specifically in eighty seven though, it's in comparison to where they were earlier in the year that makes it stand out in a negative way too. You know, because you had you know, Lawler versus Idol and Rich. You have Bigelow and Bachwinkle and all these people mixing into the feud. You had a very loaded undercard in a way you don't at this point, you know? Um, you know, you had Eamon, <laughs> so, who I'm sure was talking to all of his friends. But I, I get why you would see a drop-off. This stuff is not bad, but it's very different from what was going on in the first half of the year. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just Memphis, 
there were people in, people in wrestling like a Ric Flair and people like that that just did not like the Memphis style of wrestling. You know? So. Well, yeah. Which is funny because, I mean, what territory was friendliest to the sheep? Sheet readers. Memphis. Yeah. Nasty Boys have a great visual appearance and a great gimmick, which they play well. The only problem is they fight like two big women. And I don't mean Dump Matsumoto either. And the recent match with Bad Company been pretty bad. The first meeting of the two teams was an excellent brawl, only because Patanaka took a few incredible spills, and because it only lasted three minutes, 24 seconds. But when they have to do real matches, the truth comes out, so to speak. Fight like two big women? <laughs> I sort of vaguely get what he's trying to say, but I can't put it into words. You know what I mean? I think one thing that... I think it's maybe that knobs and sags facially look like two big children in this era. He's talking about their brawling style, though. I know, but I'm just talking about visually as mm. well. I think that, I mean, we, we said they have a great visual appearance, but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess he's just on the way, the way they throw their strikes i guess i don't know i mean that's where you know clubbering you know comes from is nasty boys basically so yes four fisties on one head is so i don't know but he he praises them but you know he kind of takes a shot at them too but their look in memphis though was a good look. It was different than they had any other territory because they weren't wearing the shirts. They had these, you know, slick jack uh, ring coats, and they had the singlets. They still had the hair, but they didn't have the shirts on the Nasty Boy shirts. And they came out to Nasty Boys by Janet Jackson. You know, yeah. Here early on, they come off almost more like a babyface version of Bebop and Rocksteady from Ninja Turtles. If that makes sense. In a way, they, they come off... Uh, I'll tell you what they come off as as well. They come off as like a... Instead of not being from the future, but a present version of the new breed. <laughs> I can see that. In a way. Alright, let's go to world class. Not good. Yes, Actually, last week was the... Uh out-of-work Dallas area actors promotion. Now we have effectively the out-of-act Dallas area wrestlers. <laughs> out-of-act Dallas area wrestlers? <laughs> out-of-act? Excuse me. Out-of-work. <laughs> okay. Iron Sheik made his world-class debut on September 18th. Team with oh, Alperations Matt Bourne and Bruiser Brody at Sportatorium. Talk gets Dick Slater maybe coming in here soon where he'll be managed by Percy Prangle. Slater Slater debut on the October 17th Cotton Bowl show. Doesn't happen. Um... He would have been interesting here. I think it would have been a. I think he would have been a, a, a bright light in that territory. But he probably he probably made a smart move and not being there at this point in time. And he ends up going to AWA. AWA, yes. Yep. Yep. All right. Will Rogers calls him on the fourteenth. We have Sean Simpson over Killer Tim Brooks, Eric Embry over Vic Steamboat. Alberto Madrill, Manuel Villalobos, over Frankie and Thumber Lancaster, and Playboy Vince Apollo. 
Texas tag titles match between the Atlas and Sweet Brown Sugar Skip Young retained over Brian Adias and Ted Arcidi. Tony Fault went to a draw. And this is Cowboy Tony with uh, Rick Dr- Rick Hazard, and Matt Bourne went to a draw with Al Perez. Is Rick Hazard both a wrestler and a referee at this point, or just a wrestler? Just a wrestler. Okay. Now, as we're about to get to, why are they running both Monday and Thursday in Fort Worth this, this week? This, uh, this isn't Will Rogers Coliseum, I don't think. This I is think a this spot is show elsewhere in Fort Worth? Somewhere in Fort Worth, yeah. It was a Thursday show. They drew two to 300 fans at this show. Had Skip Young went to draw Frankie Lancaster, Shauna, Sam Simby, Billy Bart. In 32 seconds, not Billy Barty. That would have been entertaining, though. Madrill and Lobos won by a referee decision from Playboy's following Cowboy Tony. And afterwards, Frankie and the Thumper ran in. They tripled on Manuel for a while. Then a tag elimination match saw Tony Atlas, Perry Jackson, Action Jackson, Matt Bourne, and the spoiler, the original spoiler, beating Brian Adias, Alperez, Frankie the Thumper Lancaster, and Ted Arcidi. First of all, saw Atlas and Adias both count up with a belly meringue. Then our CD pinned Jackson, Bourne pinned Lancaster, and quickly, spoiler, was DQ for Tossa Perez over the top rope, which was a Bourne with Perez and our CD. Problems between the heels is they're building up a three-way feud, which may include Perez defending the worth last title, thanks to Jeff Siegel and Wrestling Forum for that one. Comes from the two cities it's recognized in, Fort Worth and Dallas. Worth last. And against Terrible Ted. Anyway, Bourne pinned Perez on our CD, and Perez had words, and as our CD was laughing about Perez getting pinned, Bourne pinned him. The finale saw Vic Steamboat go to WQ with Killer Tim Brooks where both guys juiced. Vic is said to be super green, but he tries to wrestle exactly like his brother, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Well, it doesn't say his brother, Ricky Steamboat, it just says Ricky Steamboat, which makes you wonder if Dave knows if they're actually, that they're... He does. Okay. He does. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just to be clear, since you made the reference, they are billing him as the original spoiler at this point because... Jeff Gaylord is working on Wild West TV as the new spoiler. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right, Sportatorium, we got more from the 18th. Skip Young over Eric Embry. Skip Young over Killington Brooks. Sean Simpson over Vince Paolo. Al Madrid went to a title limit draw with Freaky Lancaster. Brian Dennis went to a title limit draw with Vic Steamboat. And Sheikin Perez went, went to a no contest with Brody and Bourne. God, it's like someone with Alzheimer's booked this show. <laughs> well, George Scott's not booking here. He's not? It's Gary no. Hart at this point? Yeah. Are you sure? It's, it's, it, George Scott's not here. Wait, when is Cotton Bowl? 86. Oh, was Steamboat was 86? Okay. Yes. So wait, when did when did Gary take over for him? Well, Brody came first. That's Brody, right. Brody took over for George Scott. That's right. So when did Gary take over for Brody? Uh, probably Parade of Champions, maybe. So what the fuck is Gary doing? <laughs> is this a house show or is this TV? It's a house show. But what? The, what is this? I don't know. You can tell he's trying with the crew. He's brought Spoiler back. He brought in Vic Steamboat to try something with him. Like he's br- was RCD there before Gary? Uh, no, no. That's an interesting one for him to bring in. But you can see why maybe he tried to do something with him. Well, he's been on WF television, right? But it's 
they're making the best of what they can with the crew and the wrestlers they can get. But this booking is not good. Yeah, the best thing for, that happened to them was, uh, you know, calling a truce with Kim Mantel. Which, you know, led to all those guys coming back in. And then Michael and, and Atbar coming back home. That was that was a huge one too. Yeah, so, when they leave Crockett in was it January, February? Yeah. But yeah, th- this is some dire stuff on television. It's on the network, folks. You want to watch it? Yes. I see- and uh, I mean, the TVs too. It's not just that the shows are bad; it's that the crowds are so pathetic. It's just sad. Where you can, and, where it's so empty on camera. And what is it, and what what is this? Uh, Lee Martin. Productions or whatever it is, yeah. Or yeah, yeah. This yeah, they don't get back together with Continental Productions until uh, November. I did. All right, so just just to give you the gist. All right, so our week is the twelfth to the eight, the thirteenth to the eighteenth. So we don't have TV, but just looking for the, like the nineteenth television. Hmm. All right, you got uh oh, that's taped at Mesquite. That's taped at the Rodeo Arena. So you got Vince Paul Alma Drill, Eric Embry, Sean Simpson, where Cowboy Tony Embry cut Sean Simpson's hair. Alperez versus Melo Villalobos, Madrill gets involved. Brian Adias, Ted Arcidi, and a ninja against Tony Atlas, a spoiler, and Skip Young. And they show where uh, Kevin Von Erich broke my, Brian Adias's hand. And um, yeah, I mean it's it's not good, not a good, not a good. Pr- promotion, not a good product. Yeah. Okay. I pulled up Gary Hart's book. Oh, okay. and this is this uh, uh, real quick. Yes, this TV. Um, there's some matches missing. Iron Sheik's first match was against Sal Olivares. Okay. So there you go. So yes, these matches did air. And this time you have Fritz's scrapbook and Gary's corner and stuff like that going on. Well, Gary's corner. The Gary Hart thing is only on Pro Wrestling this week. Okay, well, for some reason, I got Gary's Corner listed here on uh, 926. Hmm. Okay. But anyway, um, you know, and this is the version everyone can find online at Gary Hart's book, the uh, the not a- not yet edited for print version. Um, okay, so talking about what he did when he took over his booker. Um, so he talks about trying to get the drug issue under control and basically saying that he's, you know... You know, would fire anyone who showed up fucked up. So then, my next order of business was taking care of Lance Von Erich. He had recently left to work for Ken Mantell in the UWF, and when he did that, it gave... Wow, Wes, but I get, you get the point. Yeah, I know. Yes. Uh, this, gets fi- this is fixed in the final book, too. Uh, I mean, you know, gave, gave Ken Mantell an authentic Von Erich. I mean, you you know, immediately, he says, I immediately went on TV and announced that Lance wasn't a Von Eric at all. Okay, so, I guess he's saying that was his idea. Who knows? Um, okay, so then, talent. One of my big initiatives was to improve the talent situation in world class. This is, that's why I wanted to read this. Uh, I inherited Mr. USA Tony Atlas, who George Scott had brought in, and since he was a big name in the industry, I kept him on the roster. Tony Falk was also there with a boy George gimmick, wrestling as boy Tony. Was he boy Tony in world class? Yes. Okay. Yes. Did he make it to TV as Boy Tony? Yes. Okay. So that should be on the network. Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, Whoever came up with that gimmick, I don't know. 
I pray to God it wasn't George Chad. It wasn't. Uh, that kind of character wasn't something I wanted in world class. It was too risque. And since I don't think demeaning homosexuals is a good thing to do, I changed his character to Cowboy Tony Falk. And that is true. Like, he has a history of that. Like, that when Dory Funk Sr. wanted him to be gay Gary Hart, he wouldn't let him change the name, but he let him change the gimmick to basically where it was not a gay character anymore. So, that tracks. Um... I also had the Fantastics, Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton, on my crew. Really like those two guys, especially Tommy. He's actually Buzz Sawyer's half-brother, although not too many people know that. <coughs> um, that so here that, you have someone in the business saying that is true. It's possible. Yeah, I mean, it's very possible. Because that was the thing that was in the newsletters in the early days that eventually people stopped claiming yeah. that he was a, one of the Sawyers. But... Uh, well, the from the Woyans, W-O-Y-A-N, their real last name, yes. And oh, I thought, you were, I thought you were talking as yes, Kevin Sullivan and talking about a warrior. No, in fact, no, like, in, in, in the newsletters, you know, when Tommy's in George in 84, like, they call him that, Tom Woyan. Yes. Anyway, uh, over the period of a couple of weeks, I noticed that during their matches, they would take turns getting beat up. One night, Tommy would get pounded on and Bobby would make the comeback, and the next night, Bobby would sell and Tommy would make the save. I pulled them aside one night and told them they cannot do their matches that way, stressing, I can't have that, it's too obvious what you're doing. They told me that was the way they did business and continued doing their matches that way. So I simply quit playing their theme song, ZZ Top's Shark Dress Man, every night. About four days later, they asked why I wasn't playing their entrance music, and I said, I figured out... I would play your song one night, and the next night I won't play it. They got the message. <laughs> that is interesting. I like that. All in all, though, the Fantastics had a great act, and the kids loved them, and I found them to be a credit to the card. There was a young wrestler I met during my travels in Puerto Rico named Al Perez. Al and I became good buddies and hung out at the pool because Abdullah was always in the casino gambling, and I'm not a gambler. When I became the booker, I contacted Al and brought him to World Class, where I managed him. Alperez was magnificent. He was the most gifted athlete of anyone I ever managed and was trained by Carl Gotch, a real hooker and shooter. Gary always said that. And no matter what interview, shooting interview, whatever, when he talked about Alperez, he always said that. That he was the most physically gifted wrestler he'd ever managed. Yes, even over Muda. I mean, I would say over Spoiler, too, is maybe even the more, you know, impressive thing, knowing how highly Gary thought of him. Yeah. Uh, trained by Carl Gotch, a real hooker and shooter. Al knew how to wrestle, was in fabulous condition, and was the most gorgeous creature that ever stepped into a wrestling ring. We had to beat the women off with a stick. Even though the women loved him, he made a great heel because he had a mean, vicious streak in him. He was the sweetest guy in the world unless you flipped his switch. That came across in his work, and the people knew that he had a bad, that he was a bad dude. When he became the world-class champion, people believed it. He carried the belt well and made an excellent champion. Perhaps more importantly, though, was that he never got into the drug scene. He didn't even smoke. He might have a beer occasionally, but took no steroids at all. He was completely and absolutely drug-free. Which, I mean... I can, be- I can believe that. He, steroid-wise, like, he never looked like a steroid guy. He looked like a guy in good shape, and his physique never really changed. The one drawback to Al, Al, Al just was not a strong promo. Just wasn't. He was, I tell you, he was a better promo as a babyface 
But he just wasn't a strong. He wasn't a, a promo as a heel. And it wasn't that he didn't have charisma, but he needed someone or something to bring it out of him. Like just he comes off better with someone like a Gary Hart as his manager. Well, I mean, look, look at the. I mean, he's he's part of that that crew because he came along with the Malinkos. You know, he came in out of that same area and same type of training where it wasn't always about the showmanship of wrestling. Mm, yeah. Because he works, he works on, I mean, on some of those shows with Joe in their younger days. Yeah, he, he broke it in Sunbelt with the Micos. Yeah, so. Working Outlaw shows in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also it says he, I also brought in John Jardine as the spoiler. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, is also godfather to my children. There's loyalty. Blah, blah, blah. Fritz was really annoyed when I brought the spoiler in, though groaning, Don Jardine's an old guy. What are you bringing him back for? Like, as long as I'm here, he's here, I told Fritz. He did as much to make you a successful promoter as I did. Truly believe that. Uh, Fritz stormed out of the office, but two days later, he came back saying, thanks for being Gary. You're the only one who doesn't kiss my ass. Whatever. Uh, but talks about, you know, couldn't walk the ropes anymore, or Texas Legends are to be on the roster. Okay, brought other established names in, like Terry Taylor and the Iron Sheik, that would add some star power to the cards. A couple of the new young faces I recruited were Ted Arcidi and Eric Embry. Not only did Eric put asses in the seats, but he was very, also very good in the office, helping out with the daily chores. Plus, when I would be away from home, Eric would babysit my kids, because my wife was in the hospital during this time. Uh, Eric was so good in the ring that I even instituted a light heavyweight title to, for him to defend. And he talks about Mark Calloway breaking in. And then, you know, other talks about the Simpsons and, you know, talks about getting Mark Calloway booked for their dad in South Africa. So that's, that's the gist about the ta new talent. Yeah. So, I mean, he did, he was a lot better than what they, what they had been having. Absolutely. He's clearly trying. He's clearly trying to do something. It's just not working out. We well, just not the crew. Well, and also the actual creative is below par, especially compared to some of his previous books. Yeah, but he also just didn't have the crew to help him as well. You know, he just was doing what he could. Yeah. But anyway. But anyway. All right. Um, Steve Sins out of action with some sort of injury, so Dave's not sure the status of the tag titles. Mill Mascaris, or in this territory, Mills Mascaris, may be heading in for a few shots. And World Class be running shows in Houston, Tampa, and Birmingham in November. Do those happen? Well, Houston does. <laughs> I think the rest do. Uh, I think that's a show where they draw like 40 fans. In what building? <sighs> a theater, I okay. think. Let me look. Hold on, I can tell you. Let me pull this up. Was right, it in Houston uh, proper? It's what it said. I mean, I although you know it's Houston, so it could have been somewhere outside the city. All right, November. They were in Hollywood, Florida, on November twenty-first. Oh, there's that. That's why the Von Erichs Across America tour. Oh, so this is okay. So this is Von Erichs Across America. Okay, there are two thousand fans. Alright, the Houston show I'm thinking about maybe later. Okay. Um 
But I do know they did run Houston and, and drew poorly. Uh, let me see here. Houston. Yeah, I remember the story. Alright, let me look here. I'm going to this other file. Okay. Alright. Because uh, I don't know why the Houston one isn't in that one. Alright. Ask me fucking files. Uh, world class at Houston. Yeah, they, I mean, they were trying to, I mean, trying to go different places. All right, they ran the summit in January of 88. Uh oh. 80 fans. <sighs> 80 fans. That's January 88. So they got the crew back. Yeah. You know, they ran the Arena Theater on June the 12th, 88. 75 fans. <sighs> Stupid, as my old man would say, stupidity. All right, Central States. Bulldog Bob Brown returns in mid-October while a Cuban assassin, Dave's not sure if it's the guy from Canada or Dave Sierra, will be in during the first week of October. It's uh, I know Plus, he also heading in will be a new tattoo called the Rock and Roll Rebels, who will feud with the Batons. Isn't it the Rock and Roll Rebel Express? Something like that is, um, oh God, what's their fucking name? Greg Gillis. And I can't remember the other guy's name. They only really were at Central States. That's it. They didn't work anywhere else. It's but not. Wait. Are either of them the guys that worked the, uh, the worked Maritimes? Well, they didn't work anywhere else in the United States, so maybe it's some of the Maritimes guys. Because Greg Gillis, I know, is one of them for sure. So okay, yeah, them, Rock and Roll Rebel Express. Yeah, Rock and Roll Rebel Express was go, ends up in the Maritimes with Bob Brown. Well, there you go. So that's probably the hookup there. That's but, Greg Gill- D- Dino Ventura. Dino Ventura and Kid Dynamite are the ones well, in the Maritimes. Greg, well, Greg Gillis was the name he used. You know what, though? It's probably the same guy, and he's using a different name because, because Buddy Wayne's there is Wayne Gillis. Yeah, there's that. So, there you go. All right, AWA, Buddy Landale as a heel, and Alan West as a Bayface debut on the September 18th tapings in Las Vegas. Bud Rubber wore three matches. The office was happy with his work, but they aren't sure if he will work full-time. All right, let's go to our Twitter DMs. Did Bo uh, say that we could use this? I mean, it's nothing that's not out of out of hand or anything. It's something he would say if he was on the It's show, nothing, on it's the not episode. out of pocket. Yeah. All right. So we talked about Bud, Bud Rowe on the, the preview of this show on last week's show. He said Bud Rowe decided to go to AWA and got there, talked with Vern. Vern was going to use him on TV in big towns. He did the showboat taping, he went home, got a booking sheet a week later, but no paycheck. They owed him for working the taping in his hotel room. They didn't have a room for him as promised in Vegas. They had to pay for it himself. He called the office twice, told them he would like to have his money for the TV and for the room. He got the runaround and never went back. And Bo said it was a time when he was motivated and working hard. They totally dropped the ball over a hotel room and probably $150 payoff from the taping. Because if you watched Bud- Buddy and Continental and saw you know how he was there, he see him in his AWA taping. He lost some weight. He hadn't been working for a little bit. He lost some weight. He was looking good. And shows up, and uh, yeah, that's how he works. Cause they stiff him on pay. And like we talking about DMs, we could have, could have possibly got butting against Kurt Henning, 
uh, Wahoo was the booker, and Buddy and Wahoo were, were friends. Could have got Buddy and Wahoo, you know. Could have got Buddy and Tommy Rich in a few, which would have been some in the AWA. I mean, it, it would have been good to have him there. They needed somebody like him. Yes. But, but it didn't work out. I mean, if nothing else, it is good that they're realizing they have some holes to fill and are looking elsewhere. They're looking towards Southern wrestlers well, that they might not normally pick up. Well, who's booking? Well, that's what I'm saying. So you have your Dick Slater, your Tommy Rich. You know, Jeff Jarrett starts getting you semi-regularly. I mean, I mean that's the thing. You got Wahoo as a booker. Ray to Cripple Stevens is, is booking. So you got these people there. It's a different mentality. Yeah. All right, Jerry Blackwell also be headed in for several days during the Battle Royal Series. And even for a shot to Kurt Henning's AWA title. Rachel Bull and Manny Fernandez will like to wind up here after his New Japan tour. as another one. And he does. And this is the Chicago Street Fight Battle Royal series we're talking about, which mine and Dylan Hale's one of our all-time favorite wrestling videos comes from that. The uh, free-for-all video they did to the Chicago Street Fight Battle Royal in Vegas. Ted Nugent's free-for-all. Oh, what a f- That's one of our Holy Grail matches in full. Because that video, just like it's like everybody's just kicking the shit out of each other. People juicing all over the place. It looked amazing. W Network has this in their library, I'm sure. They they need to break that motherfucker out. Never happened, but they need to. This is an amazing, amazing video. Greg Ganya, Kurt Hennings exchange in that. Holy shit. Tommy Rich just bleeding all over the place like a motherfucker. Oh. Henning was giving back the title in Minneapolis on last week's TV show. Two weeks back, they held the title up between Henning and Greg Gagne. At the time, Henning was having a contract dispute, and there was a chance of him leaving. But last week, Daniel Stanley Blackburn had ruled that Kurt was champion. The contract dispute's pretty much settled. Kurt will probably stay. He's looking towards all Japan for a tour or two for additional money, which he goes in January. And this is the, the last time that, we, that I call it Kurt Cry Wolf. Because <laughs> it's, it's the last time that he threatens to go to the WF. Which imagine Kurt Henning going to WF in this era, this this year before he actually goes. You think? I mean, do you think that his career is completely different because we don't have this year of him being in the AWA, being cool, Kurt Henning that, that we would get? I don't know. Because that, that helped him grow. Yeah, to actually have this heel run. I don't know. Um, quite possibly. That that reminds me, by the way, what do you make of... I forget if we've talked about this anywhere. Uh, how... The, oh, what's his face that collects the WWF promo photos that has that website with all of them? He found a WWF Kurt Hennig promo photo. The photo is clearly from his run in 82, but with an 84 copyright date. So was he supposed to come in? Like, have you seen that? What do you make of that? There's so many times he's been talking about coming in. <laughs> um, I can't believe he was probably talking with them in 84, leaving Portland and going there and saying going back home to the AWA. I can see that. And, and came close enough that they printed up promo photos. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, he was all but thought to be gone to uh, Crockett in 86 and then backs out of that. That's another what if. Yeah. So, I mean, Kurt just has an interesting career before he finally gets into 
WF and settles down. Definitely what, what could have been in different times and places. Adrian Donovan missed some dates with bad ear infection, but it's back to working with you with Tommy Rich. They're shining angle in Vegas where Adonis and Paul Lee dangerously put Rich in a dress and put lipstick on him as well. And this is Adrian rehabbing from WF, you know, as you saw in like Dark Side of the Ring and stuff. I mean, he, he's still not in shape, but he's re, he's rehabbing himself. Nick Botwinkle isn't scheduled to return here until late December at the earliest. Well, how about not? <laughs> because he's on, in All Japan, he leaves All Japan and goes work for WWF. Yes, as mainly as a road agent with some announcing work, but most visibly as uh, Dr. Nicholas Warren Bachman. Yes. They're on a $1 million battle royal in Vegas on October 10th, which is ridiculous. That's the Chicago tree by battle royal. <laughs> $1 million. I guess they got jealous of uh, the Crockett Cup video. $1 million. Yeah. Also in Vegas, Wahoo did a stretch of job for Kurt Henning after Henning used the object to bloody and pin him. Oh, yes. You remember what this one is, don't you? What? You remember this one? Mm, I don't know. All right. Let's see if I can find this on YouTube. All right. Um, yeah, well, he fought Wahoo up. <laughs> and Because um, I, I remember watching this for the AWA set. Oh, yeah. Here we go. All right. I was going to play the Grab Cup clip. Real. <laughs> play the what? I was going to play the Grab Cup clip because I wanted to hear. I was trying to remember the exact verbiage of for over one for one million dollars. Oh no, this is not the this is not the promo that aired at the beginning of the whatchamacallit. I, or I don't think it is. Yeah, this is a different one. This isn't the one with the voiceover. That's the one from the commercial tape. With the che- with the uh, I'll call it the, the 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 song that was used in like the Cheetos commercial. Or the, the, the Cheeto thing is dancing. Okay, I the, think this is the right one. Yeah, there it is. It's the song. Oh, this is just the song. This is just someone finding the song. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I found the Kurt Henning Wahoo thing. Okay. All right, so let's uh, let's watch this here, and let's watch how bloody Wahoo gets. Hey, we actually have a clip. How about that? Oh, you put in uh, the notes. Okay, you didn't. I was looking at the. No, I haven't. I'm putting it right here in Skype chat. Okay, you hadn't sent it yet. That's why I was confused. Okay. Wait, so this isn't our week, or? Well, the match is. <laughs> the match is taped during our week. Eh, close enough. As a second screen, you. One billion dollars. Along with the living legend, Larry Zabisco, with the call of the action. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people might be upset Kurt Henning stepped out of the ring. I do it myself. Ever get us that Rod Trongard or Roger Kent? Hey, that's Rod Trongard. Breaking the rules. There is a shot to the head. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You ball can ball hear ball the hair piece. Was punch him and kick him and help him. Henning still managed to do a beautiful wrestling move. And Wahoo McDaniel, I believe, like, you know what? It looks like Wahoo got up that way. Oh, he got out. He got out. One, two, three, just like Mick Bockwinkle. And don't left. tell me, don't tell me Wahoo. Here's Wahoo McDaniel. Glad I didn't hear Fired away and down the wrestler will beat the rule breaker every time. Every time. 
Maybe we'll get a chance to look at this again. Maybe not. We have to wait for the word from our director as Kurt Hennig. Now, all I saw was Wahoo McDaniel was, again, breaking the rules, leaning outside the ring, trying to, to get his hands on Kurt Hennig. He was outside the ring. Now, what respect did the referee when the referee tried to get rid of him? I think he's, Mitch, hey, this Mitch, makes my day. Mitch Snow and Tommy Wildfire Rich have come into the ring. As you can see, Wahoo McDaniel is a bloody mess. He has been cut severely in the forehead, and a towel is now being wrapped around. Do you enjoy seeing this, Larry Zabisco? I enjoy seeing someone like Wahoo, who cheated from the bell, oh, finally get what he deserves. I tell you before, hey, it makes my day. If I was Kurt Henning, I would have opened up sooner. It you saw sure. Kurt Henning did move after move, threw him on his back, put him in holes, and all Wahoo did was chop, elbow, kick, chop, elbow, kick. I knew Wahoo was afraid of him from those tactics, and I tell you, that's why I'm a legend, Rod. Henning pinned him in the middle, one, two, three. The wrestler will beat the rule breaker every time. It's the science. Henning pinned him in the middle of the ring, one, two, three. That's correct. He indeed did. Period. You, you can sit here and tell Period. me that you enjoy seeing a man being hey. carried from the ring on a stretcher. I don't enjoy people being carried out, especially if it's me. But Wahoo asked for it. I enjoy seeing justice. The next justice I'm going to enjoy seeing is me against Kurt Henning for the championship. This takes care of Wahoo. Good. Couldn't have worked out better for me. I don't care who's the champion as long as it's me. Larry Zabisco. As we look at the wrestlers, Mitch Snow, I mean, JT Southern. Think about it. If Wahoo didn't try to chop in the throat, if he went out there and wrestled, and maybe show some self-pride and dignity, maybe Kurt Henning wouldn't have hurt him so bad. Did you ever think of that one? I think Wahoo asked for it, and he got it. For you to say that Wahoo is afraid, was afraid of Kurt Henning, I think that that is a If he wasn't afraid to wrestle him, why didn't he go out and if wrestle If he was afraid, he wouldn't have been in there in the first place. Now, Wahoo McDaniel, I, I, I think and Wahoo hopefully he is not seriously hurt. Kurt Henning's a better athlete, better shape, better endurance. He tried to do Kurt Henning in quick with a lot of exaggeration of the rules in terms of chopping to the throat. Good hold, Wahoo. And it didn't work. And Kurt Henning proved that not only is he a good wrestler, but he can take care of himself when it comes to street fighting or whatever Wahoo is trying to pull off. You only get a good shot of the blood. Maybe next time he'll set a record. I seem to remember there was one that was a better shot. Maybe I think I'm a match. All right, there you go. What's going on here, Mr. Zabisco? What's going, what's, going, what's going into his right hand right there? I don't there. see anything in his right hand. Inconclusive proof again. I don't see anything in his right hand. There's something in his oh. right hand, and here he hey, cocks it a lot, a lot and lets time, it go. A lot of times you can break your fingers in there, man. He was popping a joint back here. And I love that music. Wahoo McDaniel is split yes. wide open by that shot to the head. Don't tell me there wasn't something he must in that right hand. Right back. Oh, I love that too. That's what... <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. Brings back so much memories whenever I hear that on 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 DVDs of stuff I burned from the eighties. Which okay, here's the thing I never really understood. Why didn't you hear it on every network? It, it was. It I don't know. It was, but it was a tone that was to let the local cable companies know when they were going into and coming out of a break. ESPN did it a lot. I remember MSG Network had it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
but but yeah, I mean, AWA had a good crew at this point in time. I mean, a good young crew. At this point, they totally had transformed that territory since Wahoo took over. You know? Yeah. I enjoy I enjoyed AWA in this era. We we enjoyed when we want rewatched it. It's it, it it gets a it got a bad rap. All right, um, the soon to be. Oh, I found something on YouTube that says commercial break sound effect. Okay. I'm curious if that's it. I have no idea what that is, then. I knew it. All <laughs> right. Uh, soon to be AWA Women's Champion Medusa Michelli is so bad that the last two times I, Dave saw her may have been the worst two non-glow matches he'd ever seen. The trio of her, Nick Kaniski, and Kevin Kelly have potential when you just look at them. But the minute they do an interview, they look like three kids who are doing pretend pro wrestling interviews. <sighs> they did. They, I mean, they all three of them together at this time. They look great. But yeah, Deuce was green as grass. And, pre- and credit to her, she vastly improved herself. Yes. Nick Kaniski was a you know good enough hand. Um, Kevin Kelly wasn't a good worker per se, but again, like that's right. As you look at them, you're like man, they look like a million bucks. All three of them together, all blonde and tanned and muscular. I mean, they all look great, but it just didn't carry over into having major charisma. Like I said, but Deuce would improve on her stuff as time went on. Yeah. All right, let's go to Portland. The big news here is the departure of longtime number one heel Rip Oliver to Titan after all. Oliver, who had the tag titles here with Super Ninja, Shunji Takano, left early in the month and made his first big Titan appearance against Billy Jack Haynes. The two had a long feud in this circuit, and uh, well, he was making his first big Titan appearance on September 23rd in Portland. The grapplers now entered the area and suspected that he will soon take Rip's place as a new lead heel of the territory, which adds to the fact he's probably become the booker. It makes sense. Chris Colt returned on the 12th, and they started an angle where both Colt and the grappler want to take over the clan. Uh, Super Ninja Joey Jackson are given a tag titles and are now managed by Chris Colt with no mention at all about what happened to Oliver. The two of them, a few with the Southern Rockers, will probably wind up with the straps. Colt's also managing Moondog Brady and the grappler. See, so he talks about grappler replacing Oliver, and is already feuding with Northwest Heavyweight Champion Mike Miller. Yeah, they, Chris Colt kind of becomes the de facto replacer for Oliver for a little bit and then they just dropped that completely and Oliver comes back so that helps out too but yeah I mean if they didn't have the grappler come in to replace Oliver that would have been a death blow to Portland to lose Oliver Yeah, they had had nobody that could have stepped up in his shoes props to Lynn Denton for coming in there and becoming the lead heel, getting himself over, and his it's his booking that turns that territory on his ass with Piper helping him. You mean from being on its ass? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sorry. Um. Okay. So that just made me think of something. By the way, Chris Colt is here here through when. Chris Colt's there going into 89, I think. He's definitely there in 88 for a good stretch. And when does the commission start and institute the no-blading rule? 88, right? Sounds about right. Chris, would you like to remind everyone what led to Chris Colt leaving Continental? 
he got a letter at the Batwall Auditorium telling him that he had AIDS. Well, he had gotten tested or something, and the bat and there was AIDS prevention literature sent to the Batwell from the public health department. Well, yes. So, do we think it's possible something similar happened here? Hmm, possible. Possible. So, at least the latest date for him on Cage Match is December '87. He's there in '88. He's there as a manager. He does start managing more. But he's there, and he, he does wrestle some in 88. I'm pretty positive on that. Yeah. Uh, let me see what I have my last result for him uh, wrestling. Uh, on my, just on my, what I've watched on DVD. All right, yeah, the clan became the Mafia. Uh, okay, the last match I have, what'd you, what was your date? It was the last week of December. Okay. So that jives there on my re- on the viewing list. Let me see if I ha- what I have for him on the results list because I like I said I do remember him being there in '88. Again, may have been as the, the leader of the mafia. All right, Chris Colt. Uh, yeah, December twenty eighth, eighty seven is the last result I have. Okay. So it's I mean very very possible. So, um, and Grapple, like I said, Grapple comes in and, like I said, takes over the book and pretty much is here for the rest of the territory until it's over. Yep. Homesteads in Portland. Paul knew a 400 pounder from the Minnesota area is now working more often here. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. PN News, the avalanche here. This is first push. You know? So, what was he doing before this? He worked for AWA under cars. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. As under his real name. Was he trained by Vern or by Eddie Sharkey? Um, I think he's Eddie Sharkey. Okay. Billy Jack Haynes recently opened Jim Morgan City, and Hulk Hogan make a personal appearance at the opening with someone and ten thousand fans show up. Very true. And what is his? I need to find what was it that Rolling Stone article that had his raid in this era it was like twenty five grand, right? <sighs> I'm sure, I'm sure Billy Jack got a got a discount, but well, I mean, of course he did. He's uh, well, that, that, we don't have the uh, uh, the thing yet, but he's affiliated with the World Wrestling Federation, Bix. You mean the Oregon Wrestling Federation is, and you know that because it has wrestling federations. Well, yeah, but there's no Oregon Wrestling Federation yet, but yes. Yeah. Well, Bill Jack ain't still working with WWF though. At this point in time, he's still doing shows. I know. So that's probably why he got. And, he, and Hogan probably did it for you know a favor. So there is that. All right, let's close out this section. What a what a little story. Okay. Oh, I, fa- I found it. it yeah, it was twenty five thousand dollars. It's an article about the Monster Factory and Lawler was there, I guess, for a show or whatever, or, or a Larry Sharp show. And he's talking about how he was getting $500 for the WWA show he was working and then flying out tomorrow after a bar mitzvah gig. And Rolling Stone quotes Jerry Lawler as saying, and this is, yeah, okay, it's the March, oh, this was actually a few years later. It's the March 22nd, 1990 Rolling Stone, but still. Lawler's quoted as saying, do you know Hogan got $25,000 for a bar mitzvah? A fucking bar mitzvah! <laughs> Any idea who that could have been, Bix? 
I have no idea. Either of, I don't know either bar mitzvah. No. I was saying, what Jewish professional wrestler uh, had a, would have had a bar mitzvah in that time? Oh, do we get someone who became a wrestler? <laughs> that's possible. I don't know. But anyway, let's close out this section with this great note. Liam Ivias up in the run of show in Hawaiian. I took with Ric Flair on top. Doesn't happen. <laughs> Maybe if she would have had uh, Rick's friend Dick Wood involved in it, oh, that, or and Jimmy and Jimmy Garvin's friend Dick Wood, mm. then then uh, you know, you don't remember that all that stuff. Anytime they would mention going to like Hawaii or some shit, Rick mm. Flair and Jimmy Garvin always talked about Dick Wood and Gordon Soley. So he was obviously some dude there that was connected. Our dear friend Dick Wood. Did he did he have friends that go bang bang? That kind of connected? Uh, who knows? Liam Ivia did. Bang bang. Uh, thank baby you. Baby shots. Yeah. Well, that was... That that worked. <laughs> I was waiting on the the song to do it. I, I realized it's gonna, probably going to take too long though. When did the lyrics kick in? I hit the ground. There we go. Bang bang. There you go. That awful sound. And that's not Liam Ivia singing. Bang bang. No, that's Nancy Sinatra. My baby me down. Nia Jax must know people that bang bang. Obviously. Well, she is tight with Ada Johnson, so. Well. Leah's daughter, yeah. All right, let's close out with Jim Crocker Promotions and their subsidiaries. As uh, as we said, Jim Crocker Promotions themselves was in St. Martin, not San Martin, as Dave said earlier, for the NWA convention, and which took place on the 15th and 16th, where Jim Crockett was again prom- appointed president of the NWA because Bob Geigel is no longer part of the NWA. So Jim Crockett has took over. And vice presidents were Giant Baba and Carlos Colon. So, I mean, the three strongest promoters in the NWA probably at this time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically. I mean, so. I'm curious to pull up the NWA membership roster if we have one for 87 to see who's left. Uh, let's see. Does Hisa have one for 87? No, nothing between 85 and 90. 85 had Geigel, All Japan, Polypro, Fred Ward Promotions, Double Double C, Crockett, uh, Don Owen, Southeastern, Florida, World Class, uh, EMLL, Steve Ricard, uh, whatever the Dominican Republic promotion was, and Larry O'Day and Ron Miller in Australia. So it probably hasn't changed that much, except Dallas is out, Central States is out. Continental's out. When did Continental officially pull out? 87. Okay. Part of that collective they were going to be with the, you know, the AWA champion. Is, is uh, New Japan still a member? Probably not, right? I don't know that one. That's a tough one. Fred Fred Ward might be hanging around as a weird associate. Anoki was a member. Okay, or whatever. Oh well, Anoki has his own weird thing. Yes. So, yeah, but that's basically what the NWA convention became was the Crockett party. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, they come back and they run a show in Pittsburgh at Civic Center, or excuse me, Civic Arena, on uh, the 18th for 6,000 fans. Because there's Sean Royal over Jimmy Jackson, local Pittsburgh guy. Downtown Denny Brown over Colt Steele. Barbarian, Bob Marion over Rocky King. Ivan Koloff over Kendall Wyndham. Jimmy Garvin Barry Wyndham going to a draw with the Midnights. Lex Luger over Nikita Koloff by DQ. Rock and Rolls over Arn and Tully. And Ric Flair retained the NWA world title beating Ronnie Garvin. Yeah, people haven't heard the Patreon show yet. It's not out yet. They don't know who Bob Marion is unless they've read Todd Gordon's book. Well, there you go. So patreon.com slash Trinity Sheets. There's you a hook. Find out what why we call Barbarian Bob Marion. Yeah, I think they can figure it out. But uh, Jimmy Jackson, he must have had some role in helping pr- promote the shows or something, too, because he is on basically every Crockett Pittsburgh show. And he's on the Pittsburgh shows in the early 80s. A lot yeah. does does TV jobs at times too. So that you see him on these shows, even when there are no other uh, Pittsburgh guys, makes yeah, you think it, that there's got to be some other role he has. I forget was he Pittsburgh kid or was that someone else? I can't remember if that's him or not. But um, yeah, he's definitely got a hookup somewhere. Maybe he's got the promoter's license. It is Pennsylvania. I mean, wouldn't Gary Juster or someone like that be doing it by this point? Well, that that's the thing. Um, if I'm not mistaken, at this point in time, it's the Murnix. In Pennsylvania? Yep. And yes, Pittsburgh kid is Jimmy Jackson. I think it's the Murnix because they won in Pittsburgh. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, so now let's go to the subsidiaries. Chantry Rest from Florida. Okay. This group is folding. So let's not pick on it too much, but come on. On the September 22nd show in Tampa, they're advertising a loser leave town match with Mike Graham and Steve Kerr versus the Sheepers. Now, we all know the Sheeps have already arrived in UWF, so the result of that one's easy to figure out. However, the Marks don't know this, so there's nothing wrong with that since the Sheeps UWF TV matches won't show up until after the 22nd. However, in advertising shows in October, Graham and Kern figure prominently on cards, and more so. They advertise a match on October 22nd for a few, which hasn't even begun to be played out. On October 22nd, West Palm Beach show has Mike Graham against Mighty Yankee number one, Jerry Gray. Steve Kern against Ivan Koloff, Ricky Morton, Tilly Blanchard. Robert gets Dorfman Jr. Flair, Lex, and Arn against Dusty and Nikita and Kevin Sullivan. And one more match, Newbury versus Midnight. Which to Dave is totally stupid advertising match at a new breed as babe face before the turn ever even takes place. But that's not the worst of it. On the TV show which aired this weekend, at the end of the show they had the word Finis. Designated this was the final show ever of CWF in that format. They aired a video of Johnny Ace, still kidnapped by Kevin Sullivan, Bugs and McGraw, who were bullying him around. Sullivan was making Ace wash Kevin's hands while Bugsy was making Ace read the book, The Three Little Pigs, although he made Ace called the pigs sheep instead. There's no wrong idea of the skit. Actually, maybe there is, but if so, it's at least their problems. However, Ace kept cracking up while doing his lines. Can't they do a second take when a guy can't do his lines with a straight face? That's not the worst of it either. Later in the show, the sheepers come out for a match, and who's carrying their flat pole? You got it, Johnny Ace. It was explained that Ace was released from captivity by Sullivan and Bugsy. Not bad, either. But this is later in the show. The Sheepherders come out for an interview, 
later in the show, demanding that Kevin Sullivan and Bugsy McGraw release Johnny Ace, who was with them earlier in the show, and claimed they were going to start hurting people left and right until Ace is released. And also on that show, they had a clip of the Sheepers injuring the Cuban assassin. They showed clips of him being in Ricky Santana's leg, and then a clip of Dave Sierra being carried out in the stretcher. So was it Santana or Sierra that was injured? Because they said Cuban number one. Or both. Or neither. Nothing was explained. JCP, everybody. That, yeah, they, they run this show. Yeah, they're producing the TV. Um, Holy shit. Now, the Phineas thing... What was this, the last studio show, or...? Uh, probably. Because the TV goes on with original shows through the end of the year. Yeah, but it's all in arenas. Okay. So, I thought the studio shows ended a little before this, but I guess not, because what else would this be the end of? Because Gordon's already gone. Been gone. For over a month. Yeah, so... I don't know, but... Good God. I wish you had footage of this, but... I do, too. Ugh, little pig, little pig. Let me <laughs> in. Uh, <laughs> not by there, but chitty chitty. <laughs> How does this happen? Quality control. Quality control, folks. Uh, How does uh, this fucking happen? The three little pigs have any sisters? I mean, how does this happen? I don't know. <laughs> I want to see Johnny Ace corpsing doing this. It's fucking, I mean, it seems like this happens more in wrestling than anything else. You know? I don't know. No, and no, this is uh, not on YouTube. So, all right. Results from Orlando on September 13th at Eddie Graham Sports Stadium. We have Gary Fitzpatrick over Incubus, who's about to become Mighty Wilbur. Luis Estella over Robbie Idol. Johnny Ace over Bill Mulkey. Steve Kern and Mike Graham over the Mighty Yankees. Mike Rotunda pretend the 40 way to go into a no contest with Dorfwood Jr. Bugs and McGraw, Ricky Santana, Kevin Sullivan beat. Butch Miller, Luke Williams, the Sheepers, and a masked wrestler, the Great Kiwi. I don't know. No idea. Before you ask, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no is there any point in the second half of 1987 where Mike Rotunda is not feuding with Dory Funk Jr.? It's on everything. It's on. It even goes on TBS. <sighs> yeah. Is this every? Is this also the period before he leaves, where Gordon Soli talks on commentary about what a great Latin star Mike Rotunda is? Probably. Okay. <laughs> Maybe meant Italian. He got his ethnicities mixed up. Well, anyway, because it is God. God, as Dusty would call him. All right. Um, Kevin Sullivan's making hits that he'll be turned before Thanksgiving. When does he turn? Um, at, at the end of December was when he starts doing the stuff of mine after Starcade. Okay. New announcer Jack Gregory on Power Pro and Chinch Wrestle Florida is a former sportscaster from Durham, North Carolina, who previously worked for NBC Sports out of Los Angeles. Good old Jack. He's not great, but there have been worse. A lot worse. Yeah. But yeah, he. He didn't fit. Wrestling wasn't for him. Just the way it is. Probably a nice guy and everything, but 
Wrestling wasn't his speed. But yes, he he hosts these shows. Um, and then when um, Starcade takes place and they decide to basically end the original uh, runs of uh, UWF, Power Pro, which is later than the other ones, and um, CWF, they become uh, revamped versions of Pro and Worldwide with Jack as the announcer. Yes. And at one point they were planning on they would shoot interviews multiple times in front of different backdrops, but I don't think that really lasts. It, it did happen though, because I have them. Right, because you have like one or two early '88 Power Pros, right? Where Jack's interviewing people for Florida-specific shows. Yeah. Yes. So it definitely did happen. But there's also a version called Championship Wrestling from Florida of those shows too. Exactly, which I have that too. So, so a little bit of that. So. Anyway. Uh, yeah, it's, it gets kind of confusing, but that's also the only way we have some of that pro and worldwide stuff too. So and there's that. The weirdest thing is how I think it's the first Fantastics Midnight's match. Maybe it's the second. Maybe it's the title change, but I think it's the first. The commercial break timing is different on the Florida version. So there's different parts of the match on the Florida version than there is on the pro version. <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked stuff like that happened, yeah. Now, speaking of all the TV issues, or whatever you the want new to call it. The new Florida show is hosted in studio by Jack Gregory and Jim Ross. Show includes mainly of the Charlie guys with little UWF. With the Florida circuit shutting down, might return to staying around as Florida champion. However, it appears the mighty Yankees, or as Florida tag champions, have been forgotten and the belts may vanish. But the circuit doesn't actually end up shutting down for a few months. No, and the TV show obviously is CWF. Because Southern Pro, I mean, there's a Florida show still airing with Steve Kern on commentary. That's the normal show because it's out there. I've well, got also it. there's, I mean, there's CWF that's not a studio. I've never seen this studio show. I'm guessing they dumped this when they dumped the UWF studio show, which well, we'll it's probably the same. Well, it's probably the same show. I don't think Jack Gregory was on the UWF studio show. He was. I've only seen the ones with Jr. and Missy. He was on there. Okay, so he was in the mix on there. Yes. So this is either the same show or more or less the same show. Yes. Okay. So as we'll get to in a second, this doesn't. This only lasts a few weeks, so that's probably why we don't have any recollection of ever seeing this because it's probably just hand in hand with UWF. Well, let's go to the UWF now. Before anyone writes and tells Dave how terrible the new new new, new UWF show is, remember this show was being done specifically for the New York market. Which hadn't seen all those angles beforehand. You want to explain that one, Bix? All right. So the deal was was that Turner somehow had exclusive rights to the NWA, or at least Crockett produced wrestling as the NWA. And because WPIX was where they got on in New York, and WPIX at the time is a superstation. So whether it was cable exclusivity or superstation exclusivity, whatever, they couldn't have the NWA branded shows, so they couldn't have Worldwide or Pro on WPIX. So I guess because they're already so overworked with production, they didn't want to make an additional new show, so they turned the main UWF show into a studio show that's recapping stuff from, in theory, all of the Crockett 
circuits, but mainly uh, the main Crockett circuit with a little UWF. And it only lasts a few weeks before they give up on it, and then once UWF is done, PIX just gets worldwide anyway. Yeah, weird how that worked out. Why, why was it a, a problem to begin with? Who knows? But l- let's continue here. Alright, so... Um... But for those who didn't see it, the show was done with Jim Ross, Man and TA, and Missy Hyatt in a newsroom type setting, introducing clips of one angle after another. I think Jack, I think Jack Gregor may be announcing the matches. I think that's what he does on this show. Uh, first ten minutes on Dusty, of course, uh, showing all those angles for the new market before getting all the personalities over in the first place was ridiculous. And for the old markets, the show was ninety percent repeated material. However, days went away a few weeks, so to get all the kinks out for writing much about the show, except for this. I watched a show with some friends who are very casual fans who didn't watch Titan show. You can see where this is heading. They remembered everything about the little witch happened on the Titan show and nothing of what happened on the UWF show. Too many angles coming on too fast means most of, if not all the angles don't register with the casual public, which is where your big crowds come from. Personally, I think a format like that also hurts the angles because there's no spontaneity involved with the show. When you know you're watching tapes, i.e. it doesn't have the feel of a show, which looks live. The first show in new format is going to have some bugs, but Dave's got had a gut feeling it won't work. The show's too much like pro wrestling this week. A show which has the feel of a new show around an action show. I was in Los Angeles on Saturday morning and saw the show, which also advertised the Wednesday night car at the Forum, while Titan show, which followed up this Friday night show at the sports arena. Crockett definitely needs to have localized interviews building up the car, even if he limits it, limits it in just his major cities. Because even though the JCP car was ton stronger... Titans car was something like Graham versus Reed, Battle Royal, Beefcake, Hercules. It totally let the hype need to get the fans to the building. More so unsettling was uh, advertiser Chris Adams, Terry Gordy, and Buddy Roberts on the car. Now, if they just quit a few days earlier, it's one thing, but they've been gone for 10 days, three weeks plus in Buddy's case. So they had ample time to correct the promos. They don't have the manpower to cover all the markets, so they don't. They didn't get the correcting updating promos, so the eighteen hundred or so who show up at the forum on Wednesday will be mad because three key wrestlers didn't show up and hurt the crowd the following card. When Titan had all these problems a few a few years back, I raked them over the coals for it. Crockett and the gang at the convention last week should have spent time trying to correct the obvious problems facing them. Stalemate of Enters, a TV product looks weak in comparison to Titan. So that their strength better and wilder action at house shows would be appreciated by more fans. Here's the thing I've never gotten about this TV change. Why not just use Power Pro? It has the more generic name. It's the B show, so changing it is going to do less damage. Why is the show that you're changing specifically for PIX and putting there? Why is it not Power Pro Wrestling? I don't know. That's weird, right? I can't tell you. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the reason why they they didn't do that. It makes more sense to me. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's the main thing I was getting at. You're with me that this makes more sense, so... I mean, because, yeah, because Power Pro... I think, a lot, I think a lot of this stuff that's going on this time, because they're overwhelmed. Yes. They, they need this vacation bad, I tell you that, but still, the thing is, they're still overwhelmed when, they, when, everything, when they come back. Yeah. I mean, and Power Pro continues their original ratches during these few weeks. Yes. You know? And UWF picks it back up. Yeah, the UWF thing only lasts, what, three weeks? Yeah. Something like that. So it, it it's not a big deal long term. I mean, here's the other thing, though, with what I just said. 
Power Pro had become a very lame duck show over the summer. So if you're replacing that with a studio show, there's you know, very little damage you're doing. Exactly. So for some, but for some reason they just they didn't. So yeah, just to get an idea, um, the twelfth is the first studio show for UWF, and that weekend Power Pro is Black Bart Squash, Ron Simmons Squash, Taylor and Gilbert Squash, and then they beat up Jimmy Suzuki, of course. Shane Douglas versus Angel of Death, Gary Young Squash. Jive Tone Squash and uh, Sting and Chris Adams versus, I guess it's kind of a squash, but not exactly, uh, Mike Boyette and Killer Khalifa. So, no great shakes either on the first Power Pro where it's theoretically the A show. Yeah. But also, I, they're just, I, we need to make it clear, they're doing way too much television. Yes. So, let's review. Strictly in syndication, they have six... Uh, actually, do they have even well, more? No, I'll, go, I'll go down a list. I'll do this for you. All right, so they have Super Bouts airing in the, on Saturday morning. And I believe then that's got, also in syndication in some markets, right? You've got Pro and Worldwide Saturday. you got World Championship Wrestling on Saturday night. All right, you also have uh, CWF. In Florida, you got uh, UW Power Pro. You forgot about Southern Pro. Yeah. Southern Pro may be still airing as well in Florida, so you got that. So you got no, two shows I think in Florida. At this point, I think it still might be, yeah. So two shows in Florida, two UWF shows. Then you got um, Best of, no, uh, Sunday Edition, World Change of Wrestling on Sunday. So you got five, five and a half to six and a half hours in syndication, depending on when Southern Pro ends, because it's around this time. Um three on cable and it's all still this little company within the convenience store well no i mean they also have the dallas office at this point but still like it's just too much for these people Mm-hmm. yeah it is they're being overworked and they're spending way too much money and this is what's leading to their downfall it's just it's just too much i mean i i get okay I get purchasing the UWF and and being involved in Florida, yeah. but what the thing to do is is you make them strictly like satellite groups and kind of strip it down a little bit and go and and just go that way, you know, and put and have let them have their own bookers and. Just do do what they do. I mean, that's kind of happening, though. It's kind of happening, but they're they're bleeding in. They're bleeding in too much of the main Crockett talent, though. That's yeah. the thing, and the main Crockett talent is being overworked. Cause of it, and Dusty's one of them. Well, and here's something else with that too. Don't forget this problem. Uh, unless they're in a dark match, all of a sudden now there are a lot more shows where guys are making twenty five dollar payoffs because they need to tape all this TV. Yeah. So, wrestlers are pissed about that, too. Um, what was I? Oh, now I remember what I was going to say. Being that, for most of this time, the Florida show retains kind of its same look and graphics, UWF shows still, for the most part, retain the same look and graphics and everything. And, you know, when Michael Watts was selling stuff, actually had a few episodes after the sale 
that you wouldn't expect him to have. Was Crockett and his crew even doing the production on Florida and UWF? Um, Joe Watts definitely wasn't doing it because he quit. No, I know that, but like you and video, video Bob may have been doing stuff. But you get what I'm saying. The UWF shows it's and the Florida show. It's not like it's Central States where all of a sudden you have the Crockett graphics, you have the every, everything. They still look like the same shows. So I wonder, yeah, so actually, is the Crockett production crew actually being overworked here? It's all right, I'm, I'm, all right, all right, here we go. Right, I'm watching the UWF credits mm-hmm. uh, from August 22nd, 87. Produced for the Wrestling Network by Thomas Edwards. Director <laughs> R. Von, right, Von Gersey. Video Bob. Yeah. Video Bob is the director. And Thomas Edwards, of course, Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. Your host, Jim Ross and Missy Hyatt. Uh... Then you got Ed Arbin and Daryl Walford, the distributors. Chris Weimer, Al Eastman, Kim Brumfeld, videography. Mike Clark, technical director. Jerry Stewart, audio. Chuck Hanscom, unit manager. Kevin Burris, engineer in charge. Lance Pettigrew, PA. Post production, teleimage. Editor, John Lafitte. John or John? John. John, J E A N. Uh, Chiron, Linda Hagues. Tape operator, Marty Fufkin. And that's, that's it. So, a non-Crockett crew. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to pull up... Okay, for Florida, should I pull up August 23rd they, or October 31st? I, I, I don't think they did credits. Well, I'll start with Halloween. Let's see. Do they have credits? Uh, not on this, at least. I don't remember Florida doing credits in that run. Okay. Because they do do credits at different times in the past. In the early '80s, they did. Yeah, uh, that was mainly when Gordon, that was when Gordon was involved with his son, sons. I think I know Greg was. Greg but, and what's the other son's name? Oh fuck, I can't remember his name. Okay, August twenty third has credits. Okay, and you know again it has the same graphics. So we've got with your host Steve Kern, director Vic Daschle, uh engineer in charge Fred Janicek, video Terry Pirro. Audio, Jim Budka, Graphics, T.L. Grant, Cameras, Vinny Fugit, John Close, Floor Director, Bill Moore, and this is a studio show, too. So that's probably gets at what we were saying earlier, that the Finice was the last studio show at the Sportatorium. So all of these shows do appear to be using the existing crews. So all the Crockett team presumably is having to do, if anything, is dub tapes. So... Maybe they're not as overworked as we thought they were. They're overworked in their ter- part of the territory. Yes, but not with the burden of these additional four hours of TV, necessarily. Yeah. Alright, so let's continue. Uh, Where was I at? Okay, we're I going to the next paragraph. Yeah. Yes. As mentioned last week, and Chris Adams, Terry Gordon, and Buddy Roberts have all departed from UWF in the Crockett. Adams left over money, although there was disenchantment on both sides of this one. He did figure probably in the future JCP plans, as one would expect it. Adams has thought with both Titan and World Class. Dave's guess is he'd go for Titan if they take him and go to World Class if he's free to work, independent dates. Unless he goes to Titan, it appears Adams' main thrust will be with the independence. And Chris becomes... You know, a guy with world class where he can promote his own shows. So I thought that was a, definitely a thing for him. 
Um, Buddy will be wrestling for Ken Mantel's Wild West promotion. True. Gordy has two tours of Japan booked for their man this year, and if he's smart, we'll get his knee operated on when he comes goes back and takes six months off to rehabilitate himself before heading back, back to work U.S. mats. That doesn't happen. Dave's pretty sure that if he gets his knee problems taken care of, he can write his own ticket as to where he wants to go and what he wants to do. Longtime Freebird mate Michael Hayes will be moved to the Charlotte office and form the tag team with Jimmy Garvin. Even though Hayes is most effective as a heel, he'll stick with the Bayface role because it's thought, probably correctly, that to sell his album, which has just been released and supposed to be heavily plugged on Crocus TV shows, starting shortly to wrestling fans, he's better off as Babyface. Kind of makes you wonder, too, if the lack of promotion for his album played a role into him leaving. Because they don't really do that. I'd be shocked if it didn't. World Class let him have his own concert. And we all know how that turned out. Yeah, the former Freebirds uh, invaded, attacked him. Yeah, while Michael singing, sitting, sitting on sitting the dock on of the bay. Oh God, is that still on YouTube? I, I'm pretty sure it is. All right, UWF branded shows, St. Louis, Missouri, on the twelfth. Well. We are, we're not doing the 12th. That's on our week. All right, Dallas on the 13th at uh, Reunion Arena. Uh, drew 3,300 fans with lots of TV matches being taped. Some of the highlights include a match with Ron Simmons against the Enforcer. Instead of Doug Gilbert, it was Rick Steiner in the outfit. And Steiner was killing Simmons under an unmasking when Steiner's face was revealed. He takes off. Also, Terry Taylor's thing had a match where Gilbert was handcuffed to Shane Douglas. After a rep bump, Taylor stole the key from the ref's pocket and unlocked Eddie, and the two annihilated Douglas still sting chased away with a chair. Lots of juice in that one. Barry Windham beat Eddie Gilbert to keep the Western States title. Rick Flair and Ronnie Garvin wound up with Flair getting count of the ring in 23 minutes of a slap fest. Dave was told Flair had four blood vessels broken in his chest of late and had so much dead skin around his chest that you wouldn't believe it. He was him and Garvin were just killing each other in, at this time. Dusty overlaxed by DQ and Dylan interfered and Doc beat Black Bart by DQ while Snap Bar interfered and Ron Simmons over Big Bubba by DQ. And this stuff aired on that UWF TV show. That was mainly from this taping. A lot of that stuff. And someone Power Pro. I think. And someone Power Pro too. Kansas City. Oh, I wanted to mention something real quick. So. In his book, J.J. Dillon, who remembers Dusty's booking assistant, explains that one of the big reasons they went with Garvin Flair at this time was to differentiate themselves from the WWF. Yes. That they had these two guys who were just clearly beating the shit out of each other legit in some way. Yeah. I get the idea. It didn't necessarily work, but I get it. Again, you're trying to appeal to an audience that isn't going to be as big as the WF's audience. You're trying to differentiate, differentiate yourself in that way, and you know I give them credit for trying to do that, and it was it worked out, you know, really well for us fans, but it wasn't box office. What's that sound like? <laughs> but uh. You know, but I mean, I, I get the idea, though. They're the cartoon where for real wrestling fans, where real like, I yeah, get and it. that's great. And that's great. But if you're going to do that, 
you need to know what's going to go what's going to happen with that but also here's the thing though too there are so few promotions left you already have those fans exactly you need to be trying to get new fans it doesn't mean you should be the wwf no but you need to try to get new fans yes that's that's the thing that's the thing but yeah there's no you, point you, i mean the... you, let's be honest you don't want to be tna when they did the same exact tv rating every fucking week i mean some variation of the same viewership and same rating every fucking week it was in a margin of error and it's always the same i mean it was usually way less than the margin error they were, there was a point where they were doing a point a 1.1 every week for months at least either an outright 1.1 one, one or something that would round to 1.1 one, one. You don't want to get yourself in that position. It's the same people watching the, your TV show and the same people buying tickets. Or, no, excuse me, not the same people. Your ticket sales are down. You're less. I mean, you don't want to be that. You've got to find something to hook in new viewers and new ticket buyers. Yeah. You know, and turn, I mean, and that's the thing with, with, with Crockett this time. Crockett, even with all these this talent they had acquired, it's still the same guys. The four horsemen should have been turned babyface. There should have been a split. There, there should have been a shakeup on top. We talk, I mean, I talk about this ad nauseum on the show. There should have been a shakeup on top. And, and at least try and see, okay, is this going to work? Or is instead, it's rock and rolls, midnights, horsemen, road warriors, dusty. dusty. Nikita, yeah. But again, my my angle that I would have ran, and I've said this before, you split the full horseman, you have Rick and Arn, and and you know, and bring Oli back. You always come back anyway. Have Oli reconcile Rick and Arn. You have Rick Arn and Oli against Tully Blanchard Enterprises, Tully Lex and a third man, whoever that would be, with JJ, with JJ. How how that would be a kick ass feud. On top, fresh as hell. Bring back Buddy for that. Wasn't he kind of yeah? Wasn't he kind of supposed to be in a Tully Branch shirt Enterprises? He, 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 he had just he had just burned him in '86. You know he had burned well, him yeah, twice. Yeah. He burned him twice in a, in a short time span. I mean, <laughs> there you could have done you could you could have figured something there are out. I mean, there's people got, they could have put in that spot. Yeah, yeah, that's UWF people. You uh, know, Terry Taylor. Dr. Dr. Steve Williams. You're turning him heel anyway. Mm-hmm. And, but he has his issues with drugs. Uh, Terry Taylor, yeah. Terry Taylor's going. He's he's leaving. Eddie, Eddie, you know, is another one. I mean, there there are people there you could have worked with that would have kind of fit, I guess. Just to figure out how you want how you want to play it. All right, uh, Kansas City, September 18th, 3800, $15,000 gate. Because low ticket prices. Rick Steiner with Dave Haskins. Shane Douglas over the Enforcer. Steve do it to a concert with Gary Young. Same match as always. Lightning Express going to a draw with the Jive Tones. Best match on the card. Shane Douglas over Terry Taylor by DQ. Ron Simmons over the Terminator. Martin Laurinaitis. Dole. Michael Hayes over Big Bo by Cannot. Very short street fight. Doc over Black Bart. Sting over Eddie Gilbert in a steel cage. We saw Taylor and Douglas each throw in a boot. Sting got a boot first and used it to pin Eddie. So there's that. Rick Steiner's a member of Tully Enterprises would have been interesting. 
Now I think about it. And that gimmick at the time, that would have been that would have worked. I like that one. As you mean as hot, stu- as hot stuff in the Muscle Head Rick Steiner, yeah. yeah. Muscle Head Rick Steiner, yeah. Mm-hmm. Power Pro Wrestling is still on the Tempo TV network, but it's moved, been moved to 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. What day? <laughs> I guess Saturday. I don't know, Vix. Um, uh, I'm, I'm guessing the but is bec- for some reason like that. It's on Saturday, but it's opposite TBS. I, I'm guessing is what he's getting at. Um, yeah. And, yeah. They had had an they had had an affiliation with Tempo in some form for years. Watts had because they were based out of was it Tulsa or Oklahoma City? And they aired Mid South Classics, didn't they? That's what I was saying. Yeah, they aired Mid South Classics. Eventually, they picked up Power Pro, and not a big name network, but Tempo had a sneaky wide footprint. Not here, <laughs> but still another, it, another another station I wanted but never got. But. I'll put it this way. They weren't at the level of TBS, USA, TNN, but they were basically at the next level down when there were not a lot of, you know, I guess you could put MTV maybe at the top too, but there were not a lot of like middle tier cable networks or even upper middle tier at the time. You know, remember NBC bought Tempo to do CNBC. That was how they got the channel space. Yeah. Uh, they're starting to build up hints of Ric Flair's Dr. Death, which won't take place probably until early 1988. It was heading that, that way. So yeah, well, it was heading that way until Doc had his issues. And then when Doc comes back, they do the, they do a series. I mean, they do do it, but it yeah. just is a truncated version. Yeah. And they also have the new TV voice, Jack Gregory. Dave doesn't want to comment on him until he's heard him for a month, but he doesn't have much experience in doing wrestling. Well, we all know that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this week on Between the Sheets. Next week, we go back to 1992. Hey. A, patron, a Patreon requested show by Matthew Finney. And uh, it's a short show because it's a short week. Only a five-day week because uh, it's another gap filler. Well, it's a gap filler in a way because I don't want to you know, screw up the calendar because you know, we just did 92 last week. This week we're doing another show, and I don't want to screw up possibly doing next uh, next year this week for 92 because there's a lot going on that week. And the stuff he but the stuff he wanted to cover is covered in those five days. Yes, but also a caveat: again, no Saturday TV shows. Yes, this is Sunday through Thursday of 92. Yes. So, um, we have the state of the wrestling business as Dave Meltzer talks about the TV ratings business and where wrestling is at this point in time. All right. So you have that. All right. The reason why Matt wants us to do the show is WF Tape TV in, uh, Western Canada, Matt, uh, Winnipeg on the 21st, Brandon on the 22nd. So we'll talk about that and on a show, which has some debuts on the show and two debuts that really piss off Jim Cornette. We'll have news on that. Oh, and, uh, Bix, we have Colorado Championship Wrestling results during. Hey, the, we're just so we have about that last week. Uh, we got a major title change in Memphis to talk about. We have, um, like I said, Cornette getting pissed off. Uh, we got uh, Lucha stuff to talk about. A little bit of Lucha here. Um, UWFI has a big show in Osaka with a major title change. Talk about that. Update on the Takano brothers from last week's show. 
we'll have that. Uh, New Japan, major show in Yokohama, Yokohama Arena, featuring uh, the great Muta against Shiyashimoto and Masahiro Chono against stunning Steve Austin. And then, uh, we, so, so we got that from New Japan. And in WCW, we'll have news on uh, Halloween Havoc in Philadelphia, including a special party being th- uh, thrown by special man. A Omni show, which... Wait, is the ter- special man one who says bro a lot? No, the special man's a show, uh, someone that we're actually talking about a lot lately. Uh, we have the Omni show. We have center stage TV tapings the night after, featuring a major title switch there. And we get Bill Watts on the record with Dave Meltzer about a lot of shit. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. Thank God for that. Because if we didn't have that, this show would be very, 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 very light. Light as it is, which means, which is the reason why we're going to do a mailbag show. Because uh, we got a real life show again. We got some time. Yeah. We got some time. So, uh, still fun, a lot of fun stuff. You have to, you have to hear the Bill Watts stuff. If you, you know, listen to last week's show with Bill talking to Wade, now we get Bill talking to Dave. So, um, and this basically ends up being the end of him talking to the newsletters, too. In a way, yes. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Big thanks as always to the Rock of the Show. This is Chris says so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Oh, 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 oh,
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chiefs Patreon Special Edition number 83. From your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time for part two of our look at the WCW racial discrimination lawsuits. Yeah. And if you thought part one was a lot, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, we got a lot more going on here. And a lot more details about things people said and did. Yeah. All right, well, let's get started. So now we move on. So that was what? what's our date on this deposition? This, it, this, so this is January 28th. Now we move on to an affidavit submitted a couple weeks later. All right, I'll uh, play the role of Moses Williams here. Yes, this is from uh, February 18th, and it's not the whole thing, but it's a good bit of the substance. Because this is just him talking. Yeah, it's just an app. Well, it's a written affidavit, but it's still sworn testimony. I work for World Championship Wrestling in various capacities. I was initially hired as a stage carpenter in October 1991 and worked as a stage coordinator when my employment was severed by WCW in March 2001. In addition to the work I did WCW, I have extensive experience in stage production and worked on many large events. Among other clients, I have worked with entertainment groups such as the Rolling Stones and Michael Jackson. I was also involved in Farm Aid. Even though I was always very dedicated to WCW, uh, there are many actions that demonstrate a racial or ethnic bias against anybody who is not a Caucasian. I, myself, am African-American. Although some of the WCW officials were more overt about their racial biases than others, I believe that there were many actions and decisions that were made based on a racial or ethnic bias. Over the years, I observed certain WCW officials make statements and take actions in order to protect the good old boy establishment. Unfortunately, the good old boy establishment was exclusively Caucasian. Also, in my experience, the favoritism and better treatment given to Caucasians and minorities was pervasive throughout WCW. And real quick, I do want to point out, just because we should be making this distinction at this point, Moses Williams is not a party to this lawsuit. He stands to make zero dollars from this. He is just a witness. But continue. During nine and a half years of WCW, WCW never had an African-American worth security in any capacity. I even recommend as a qualified person for security, but they were not hired. The decision maker, Mr. Doug Dillinger, expressly stated there would be not a black security person at WCW. True to his word, there never was an African-American hired to work in security. As I indicate further in his affidavit, Mr. Dillinger made other statements showing his racial bias. Similarly, there was never an African-American hired to work lighting at WCW. The decision maker was Frank Santoro. Oh, Mr. Santoro overlooked many qualified African-Americans. I personally recommended several qualified African-Americans directly to Mr. Santoro, but he did not hire one for lighting. Just for the record, so, he did not write, oh, in his sworn affidavit. <laughs> no, but I'm not surprised that a man named Frank Santoro may have had these types of feelings. <laughs> Similarly, Mr. Santoro was also responsible for hiring truck drivers for WCW's tra- trailers. In the years I was with WCW, I could only recall one African-American truck driver, and it was a female. She was involved in a minor incident where she collided with a painted post or a similar fixture and did little damage to the truck. The truck had been leased, and I myself inspected the truck. I did not see any significant damage to the truck. The woman was crying, and she told me that Frank Santoro fired her for the accident. I did not feel this was fair because I was aware of at least two Caucasian drivers who involved in much more serious accidents. But none, but they were not fired. One Caucasian driver was involved in an accident in Nashville, Tennessee, whereby he took out a whole street light and the pole it was on. There was damage inside the truck, and the pole was destroyed. Police even came and took a report. Yeah, she had two double whammies, female and 
back. <laughs> and a so, pro wrestling company in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Driving trucks. WCW also never hired African American to work in audio. Al Smith was a decision maker for audio. I submitted many high qualified African Americans for his consideration, but he never hired an African American for audio. The production manager was William Bird. As production manager, Mr. Bird was ultimately responsible for staging, lighting, audio, and trucking. He was supervisor of Mr. Smith and Mr. Santoro. I'm aware Mr. Bird often asked if a prospective employee was Jewish. If a prospective employee was Jewish, Mr. Bird said to hire the individual. I felt that this bias was unfair because many minorities were not Jewish. Huh. Sounds like William Bird would have uh, been a fan of you, Bix. I also recall a statement that Mr. Bird made about the child of another WCB employee, Steve Small, who married an African-American woman. Mr. Bird stated, Steve's kids will have problems in life because they're half black. Uh, okay, before we continue, um, for more on William Byrd and his interactions with the Jews, uh, listen to the ECW on DNN series, where uh, specifically he uh, clashes with Paul Heyman over various production issues, but I, it makes you wonder if there's more to that. If this guy is just going around everywhere and asking every employee, like, are you a Hebrew? <laughs> You know, like, I wonder if Heyman either knew about this stuff or something happened or what, and uh, that led to Paul having more of a distaste for William Byrd. I mean, it seems quite possible, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Vince Russo often made statements demonstrating he preferred Caucasian persons, especially Caucasian males, over other persons for WCW management and control. I heard Vince Russo often refer to people as blacks, japs, spicks, or wetbacks. <laughs> Good lord. I heard Vince Russo make statements suggesting that whites were in control of WCW. For example, I heard him say, whites rule wrestling. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I also heard him say that it was a white man's sport, and that is why we don't have many black wrestlers. I also heard him say, I am running things the way I want, and we are going to have a white champion because that's the way I want it. Vince Russo made it clear that he did not want Oriental persons, African-Americans or Hispanics, succeed in WCW, much less gain any position of management or control. It's a white man's sport. Whites rule wrestling. Whites rule wrestling. Whites rule, brother. See, he maybe maybe he and Hogan could have found some common ground. I mean, yeah. I mean, Russo. Russo's issues go back years. Look at the drawing of Dave Meltzer, even before he was in WWF. Which was not him, but was clearly directed by him. And, you know, also... Well, yeah, remember, though, it wasn't just Meltzer. Meltzer's the only one who looked in that that first newsletter that he did that was 100% him as Pro Wrestling Spotlight. There were, like, what was it, two, three issues that were just him without a resi after the split. It's, the, it's you know, the whole issue is just him yelling at media, newsletter writers, newspaper writers, etc., but the cover, so Meltzer, here's the thing. Meltzer is somewhat more recognizable as himself. He is not as bad of a negative Jewish stereotype as the depictions of Bob Raceman and Phil Mushnick that look nothing but like them. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the, yeah, I forgot about them, yeah. And those were straight up protocols of the Elders of Zion shit. Yeah. You know, so like... <sighs> 
regardless of whether he directly directed his friend, bro, bro, make him look Julia, you know, regardless of whether it was that or – Did she work for uh, – Just did approved she it or what? Did she work in the United States this best weekend for the first time? Julia? No. <laughs> Wait, you said it as Russo man sound like Julia, bro. <laughs> bro, all I hear about is uh, how this how how Julia New Japan got this weekend. <laughs> oh, I think I finally got, I got a better handle on the Russo accent. See, the thing is, you just have to remember is that it's a guy from Staten Island pretending to be do a Brooklyn accent that actually sounds like a New England accent. <laughs> oh, good lord! All right. Similarly, I heard Terry Taylor make statements demonstrating his racial and ethnic bias. Oh, really? Who were not Caucasian? <laughs> Aldo thought he was somewhat careful around me. Aldo, I guess it says Aldo. <laughs> Aldo Montoya. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard from another person who routinely used uh, the N word. I did, however, hear Terry Taylor express his desire to promote Caucasian wrestlers. For example, I witnessed Mr. Taylor overtly push Caucasian wrestlers, but not push African Americans. I also heard Terry Taylor make statements based opinions of African American fans. I heard him say blacks don't buy wrestling tickets. More for the Terry Taylor file here. And we'll hear more about that study or whatever and WCW office people making comments like that as we go on, too. As for Sonny Ono, I am now aware Sonny Ono was not a full-time employee of WCW. It surprised me because Sonny had an office listed on the extension list of WCW personnel and contributed greatly to WCW. In addition to serving in numerous capacities such as agent, entertainer, coordinator of talent, Sonny also translated for Hispanic and Asian wrestlers. Jimmy Hart's work was very similar to the work done by Sayono. Similar to Sonny, he was responsible for recruiting and developing talent. Although Jimmy didn't work as a translator, they essentially performed similar work. Although I am not taking anything away from Jimmy Hart, I believe Sonny was just as qualified or even more so given his language skills as Jimmy Hart. Okay. So to add with, to what we talked about earlier, where I feel like it was there was already a pretty compelling case that he was completely misclassified. Here you have someone who was an employee who's shocked to learn that Sonny Ono was an independent contractor. <sighs> well, it pays to be a friend of Hulk Hogan. Even more than Eric Bischoff's friends. And Eric Bischoff's the boss. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's why Jimmy Hart got, you know, got all that. I'd be curious, though, not that it makes Sonny Ono not misclassified. I am curious when, relative to becoming part officially part of the booking team, Jimmy Hart became an employee. Yeah. Yeah. Also makes me wonder, was Kevin Nash, or I mean, was everyone that was part of the booking team an employee? Like, was Kevin Nash an employee when he was the booker? Uh, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I do know that when Kevin Nash was the booker, the contract data says it has $200,000 a year for whatever allotted to booking service. And I wonder if that's classified differently, that he is providing a service as a contractor. But, it, but yeah, I do wonder about that. Like, people who are otherwise talent... So you, Bill Dundee, Robert Fuller, Kevin Nash, Randy Anderson, just whoever, you know, not people who had other office jobs, obviously, Cornette, Eddie Gilbert, whoever, were they employees when they were on the booking team? Don't know. 
Well, anyway, we continue. I did become quite upset over when WCB hired Caucasians to perform my task, but paid them even more than I was making. For example, WCB hired Trevor George, Art Shipley, and Scott Stevens, all Caucasians, to work on the props. I believe WCB paid each one of these Caucasian individuals more than what I was making, even though they were only doing one part of the job that I had done, and even though they did not have any nearly ex- excessive experience in stage management production. Similarly, WCW hired Ellis Edwards to do the stunts and props and also paid him more than I was making. And again, I was much more qualified for the tough work than Mr. Edwards, but WCW paid him more than what I was paid. Uh, okay. Maybe this is a nitpick, but Ellis Edwards was a professional stunt coordinator. He was not strictly like a stage manager or whatever. Like, it... it <sighs> I feel like if Moses Williams specifically had stunt experience, he would have mentioned it here. So, like, I, this seems... Alice Edwards specifically seems like an example where maybe he's protesting. Without more details, it seems like he might be protesting too much. It doesn't ex- It doesn't excuse anything else he's testifying to, but that that did jump out to me a little bit as a little weird that he's mentioning him. On the other hand, we just also happen to know more about Alice Edwards than we do these other people. <laughs> Yeah, there's that, too. So. As I indicated earlier, I did not confront WCB officials with my complaints about discrimination or from several individuals that I was known as the good N-word. I was best told that that, because I did not make any waves, called the Caucasian officials, sir and mister, and because I slid everything that was told, I was considered a good N-word. I think that was a did, and it got OCR'd weird. <laughs> um... In addition to racial discrimination against WCW wrestling employees, I also believe that WCW officials discriminate against wrestling fans based on race. I previously addressed Doug Dillinger. I also add that on numerous occasions, I observed Doug Dillinger, the chief security, providing promotional gifts and souvenirs to Caucasian children, but did not treat African-American children the same. I was offended by Mr. Dillinger's flagrant favoritism towards the Caucasian kids. I made my best effort to treat all the children the same, regardless of their race. Although I did go out of my way to take care of any children with apparent handicaps. As to, Mrs. D- Master Mis- As to Mr. Dillinger, I recall during O.J. Simpson trial that stating, yes, I'd use the N-word, and I would use it again. He didn't say it would not affect the way he would act in the workplace, but I believe that his actions speak louder than his words. And, of course, the context to this is that he was a member of the Charlotte Police Department for years. Uh, yes. That Which, was his main job pre-Turner, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, that's... But the fact that somebody that would have been in a law enforcement in the South had that type of uh, is not mentality. surprising. No, not surprising. Uh, you know, from that era. I mean, that was a common thing. I mean, he was the uh, he was early seventies is when he joined the uh, Mecklenburg Police Department. Oh, so he's Mecklenburg. Wait, is it Mecklenburg County or is it the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police? Uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department, early okay. 1970s. Mm. And he, um, that's when he started, he started, um, he started actually with Crockett, not in security, but he was cameraman. Like you watch some of those uh, right. early credits of JCP shows, and he's there as a cameraman. Doug Dillinger, Skeeter Brawley, Jackie Crockett. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, one of my favorite uh, cameraman credits of, of uh, Crockett Promotions in the uh, mid-80s was Marlornitis. Huh. Yeah. Also, just brother. it makes me think about it in the context of all this. Uh, boy, Os Coleman must have some stories. Ooh, I bet. All right. Uh, 
I recall Terry Taylor stating that they did not need to worry about the Spicks or brothers. They just need to get to the back of the line. I believe he was referring to African-Americans, the person who would raise complaints about the treatment of African-Americans. He was indicating that they wouldn't be put in the back of the other person seeking advance with WCW. As to Terry Taylor, I was told by another person that when WCW signed Hulk Hogan, that Terry Taylor stated WCW was bringing in Hogan, and he didn't want any blacks on the show to take away from Hogan coming back into the limelight. From my understanding, Taylor didn't want any black wrestlers to take away from his intended effect to bring in Hulk Hogan. Terry Taylor didn't have anything to do with Hulk Hogan coming in, but I, I and he I, wasn't. I don't think he was on the booking team yet, even. No, maybe this is after he signed a new contract or something. I guess it's possible, but overall, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah very, it's very damning because, like you said, Moses Williams is not someone that's got no skin in the game. He's not in this case. He's just telling you what he saw and what he heard. And also someone who was there for the vast majority of the company's existence and worked outside of wrestling operations. Yeah, this is not a money grab. He's just talking. And that he's talking about how pervasive it is, too, and the lengths it's going. You know, throughout the company. So. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.